word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult theme as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through chapter 52 of Pierce Brown's Lightbringer. Lightbringer. Hey there, this is Cross. I feel like we're at a goddamn concert right now with all the clapping that we're doing. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. PJ, I generally give it back to you here to do our filler, but you know... I think we just need to proceed because we have we have some pressing matters to attend to. <laughs> we have some unfortunately pressing matters to attend to, but I would Unhinged like to prep my throat a little bit and yeah. take a shot of vodka. I've got yeah. Reikia here. This is the last of my my Reikia bottle, last of my vodka in mm. the house, so it's going to good use. You'll understand yeah. what I mean in a second. <laughs> oh, God. Cheers. oh, God. Cheers. Yeah, there's there's no devil's cut for this episode because we I realized, I guess, that I fucked up, but I kind of had to in preparation for my thing. But before we go there, because we're going to get there in a second. Today is our seventh episode where we are going to be talking about chapters 45 through 52 of Pierce Brown's Lightbringer. But PJ, before that, we both need to have a conversation about our cursed cocktail. Fucking cursed. I yeah. It's my fault. I did this to us. I'm the yep. one that suggested yep. and actually no, this. I did. I I um, yeah. <laughs> I suggested the, the name. Yeah, and you you suggested That's what true. it means. So yeah, yeah. Which is why in solidarity, I'm participating in a different way. Yeah. So the name that I pitched to Crossland as a cocktail idea was Black Egg. And he responds with Fernet and egg. So I, what I have for you today is a glass of Fernet Bronca. And I am now going to crack a raw egg into it. So I'm going to go ahead and move my microphone. Now, just real quickly to, to add in my own, because we're going to take these at the same time, because that'll be fun for all of us here involved. I have two cocktails. I believe PJ has two cocktails as well. So there's there's that going on. But I have my first is one that is. Did you not make another cocktail? You're just doing this. I brought a beer. Okay. All right. You're like a shot of Fernet's enough. <laughs> You're shooting it or are you drinking it? I'm shooting like, it. Like what's your move? I'm shooting okay, it. Okay, good. Good, good, good. I made a cocktail. I don't have a beard. So that makes sense. But I was making a sour and I was like, huh. I should probably participate with PJ. So I made a variation on a prairie oyster that I am calling the bringer of darkness in honor of Atlas, the fear knight. Cheers. Oh, God. For the audience, PJ just broke his egg into the thing. Yeah, I had to get a picture of it. So, yeah, this is a lot of liquid. It's more than mine, but yeah. I don't know. Good, good for you. <laughs> Cheers, Daddy the Hatch. Hey, honestly, doesn't really taste like much of anything other than Fernet. But the the, egg the amount of volume, like the volume that went down <laughs> my throat, was just too much, and the the bulge of the egg yolk. 
<laughs> yeah. So I'm going to go ahead more. and post that picture into our Discord right now. If you want to see early things like this, go to <laughs> patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey and you can get it on, on unhinged shit like this. Unhinged shit that we do from time to time. This is particularly unhinged. I felt I needed to step up from the Zolodone shot, which was literally just a measuring cup full of absinthe, if you don't remember that one. So adding a raw egg to booze, I guess, is <laughs> a step. A step up. Not sure if it's up or sideways or down, but it's a step. It's a step. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So mine actually was, for those who don't know, this was a prairie oyster inspired by the recipe that is shown on Cowboy Bebop and also that How to Drink did. Very similar to that recipe. Basically what it is, is it's the egg yolk. You separate out the white, which I had to do already for the sour, so this worked perfectly. Nothing was wasted. You So you break the yolk. You do two dashes of Worcestershire sauce. You do a pinch of salt, a, a grind of pepper or two. And then you do hot sauce and then an ounce of vodka. All right. And the egg yolk. Yeah. And then throw it together. I should say the regular recipe that's from the show and from how to drink is gin, not vodka. I didn't have gin. Vodka was. So there you go. Um, the, the gin version is definitely better. But that's why I feel validated in calling it bringer of darkness as opposed to, <laughs> you know, a straight up prairie oyster. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I've talked about my back half beer on the show before, but just to let you know what's up, I've got Ectogasm by... Nice. Ectogasm is great. Mm -hmm. I made myself a little spin on a vodka sour for my drink because I was like, egg yolk. Well, I was like, I can't just let you be the only one doing egg. Like, that felt bad. So the, the ideas spun out of each other and necessity and being the mother of invention here worked out great so vodka sour used grenadine as opposed to regular simple to give it a little bit of a pop lemon of course and vodka so nice. egg white find and i did just because i was interested or intrigued i put just the smallest splash of the ginger turmeric carrot juice in here i feel i just for a little bit of like vegetal dimension and it that is like just the right amount it's it like Levels out the grenadine sweetness in a way that I kind of knew that it needed. So yeah, I keep like it was like in a, my head it that it's smash. probably super super gingery or super super turmericy. Yeah, and you've you've told me a couple it's times more turmericy so. than gingery. Yeah, but anytime I hear this that, is better I than assume last that it's like overpowering. But yeah, I know fair. that's not true. Fair. This is better than the last pass at the same idea. Or a similar idea with the ginger turmeric, where I thought it was going to be a lot. But very curious to remake that cocktail with like a ginger syrup or something like that down the line. But anyway, PJ, we have so much to talk about this week. This is a chock full fucking week. I didn't even, PJ, I have to be fully transparent. I only read about half the chapters before. I only got through about half of them last night. And then I reread them today when completing the rest of the notes. As a, as a part of that. So I didn't even realize how much fucking shit happened this week <laughs> until maybe a couple of hours ago. <laughs> a lot of shit happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So how'd you feel about this week's reading? I feel enlightened. 
<laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to come up with like a single word answer to these. But in the mm-hmm. fact that we get reveals on background stuff from what happened around Ephraim. We get all of the Fa reveals. We get just a lot of characters explaining things to each other, which is a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is a lot. There's also some action tucked in here in different spots. There's it, it's all also very well paced. We also start off with just a fucking ridiculous chapter that we'll get into in a minute here, which is perhaps one of the biggest reveals of the book, which is fun. But so far, I should say the book so far. Mm-hmm. But yeah, very excited. All right. I can't I can't wait. There's so much to talk about. So we're just going to we're going to cut right to the bit. PJ, we're going to start with chapter 45, Lysander, Allfather. This week, we start off with an absolute banger of a chapter. We start with Diomedes' reaction and the whole bridge coming to a scene of carnage as the Gorgons engage, as we later figure them out. Diomedes screams as he's being consumed by this black egg cracked over his head that slowly paralyzes him, but allows for him to continue breathing, but he loses his vision. The imposter that's taken over for Helios from last week, that was the cliffhanger that we left you on out loud, wonders about his limp and if that's how he discovered who he was. And that sold him up the river in this case. But it becomes clear over the course of a couple of pages here, wearing Helios's face and arms is none other (laughs) than Atlas Aura. Atlas has always had a way with horrifying theatrics, and this is Mm -hmm. no exception to that. He outdid himself i'd even go as far as saying that's commitment that's commitment to the bit (laughs) that's a it's it's full commitment so i guess like the question that i kind of wanted to ask is at this point when do you think that he took over for helios so we know it was after the play for sure and after phobos Right? I think he says it was after Phobos. Yes, it was definitely after Phobos before they took off. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I'm not saying that specifically, but, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, but sometime on the ship, I would assume. Sometime. So I actually think their it travel. happens on Phobos. Okay. I'm of the opinion that I think that it happens a little bit more before sort of the way that the text almost presents it. Because there's that interaction in the hangar where Helios is trying to ensure that Lysander is on a different ship. And I think that's uh, Atlas trying to protect him in that moment. That would make sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. And Diomedes is far away from him as well, which means that he can't detect it. And no one else is going to pay nearly as much attention as those two, as far as we know. Right. Yeah. So it's a it's a short window <laughs> between... Yeah. The Battle of Phobos and before they left Phobos. Mm-hmm. That's that's my opinion. I know yeah. that that's not universal and we don't really have an answer strictly. Okay. But I think to me, I think that's when that happens. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. I could be wrong. I'm just, yeah. I just feel like I remember there being textual something or other saying that it was after Phobos. No, I think that's correct. I mean, regardless, I think that's correct because of the actions of Helios and Atlas was he shows up at one point. We see Atlas, you know, Mm -hmm. so 
Yeah, they do okay. describe they, Atlas describes Helios losing his razor and not knowing like, so it it was it was a short enough window that he didn't have a chance to go back onto the ship and see what razor he had or what razors are still there. So it's kind of a tricky frame of time to figure out. I'm sure we could dig in deeper and like really, really figure it out if we wanted to. I'm sure someone has truly sussed out exactly what it is, but just my my vibe check says earlier than later because mm-hmm. that move specifically with Lysander feels like it was trying to insulate him a little bit. Yeah, but Helios, it's conceivable he wouldn't have wanted Lysander on the ship anyway. Like, that's not out of character for him. Yeah, I... With without getting into it too much, because I don't think we need to right now, definitely not out of character, but I think the text supports a little bit of a different, like his specific verbiage. Couldn't go into it last week, of course, you know, mm-hmm. while we were kind of going through things, but his specific verbiage, I think, leads me to believe the other way, but. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the way that he talks to Dido in particular as well, the yeah. way that they kind of verbally joust back and forth, but. <clears throat> anyway. Who. Man, what a reveal. I'll tell you what, this one, it shook me. It shook me when I read this. Yeah. In that in that little coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> More coffee shop stuff. Where where the rest of this book happened for me. <laughs> so <laughs> All right. Uh, but then comes the real pain as Lysander realizes that Fa and the Oscamani are his tools and that he is here to collect the bill for the Rim's rebellion that led to the downfall of the society. The terror that is the Fear Knight spools up the reactors and weapons and approaches the Rim fleet before calling Dido and annihilating the fleet <coughs> and atomizing her into less than dust. The rest of the battle unfolds in brutal fashion as the combination of Ra's planning and Fa leads to the decimation of the entire rim fleet. I really should have realized sooner uh, that it wouldn't have been enough for the, the rim to just kind of get a cold shoulder in their relations with the society remnant. (laughs) They should have had a little bit more of a stern talking to. And here, here's that talk. (laughs) Devastation is pretty fucking staggering though. Like even, even given that understanding of how things operate within the society, it's still a harsh, harsh punishment. And the decimation of two of their three primary fleets is unrecoverable, basically. Yeah, it is. It is a no-go. It's a non-starter. This is, I mean, as mentioned, this is not meant to be something that's recoverable by any means this is intended to be a stamping out of the fire yeah a couple of small shout outs that i just want to mention so there's a there's a quick line that lysander gives in which he you know i it feels like it's a reference to to revelations but it says death is here famine is coming a great little internal monologue moment that happens good old four horsemen there's a mention as well from a green that the helminth is being deployed <clears throat> worm parasite everything like that that needs to be managed specifically in context i assume that that's the virus but that's kind of what that word stands for and then in addition the chant that the grays and all the contributors the gorgons on board the deck shout is yat e et periat mundus 
which means let justice be done, though the world perish. Also, I'll hear nothing on pronunciation. I got someone who speaks Latin to give me the correct pronunciation mm. on that bad boy. Well, I'm surprised that you didn't realize that there is actually a secret fifth horseman. His <laughs> name is Steve. He's just, Steve? He just wants to ride his horse around. Uh, you clearly his, haven't his seen Good Omens fox. because you're not that far off. <laughs> <laughs> seen or read. I have not. Yeah. But it comes at high uh, recommendations, so I've been meaning to start it at some point. It's on the pile. It's a good one. The, the big old pile of shit for me to watch. I texted you a couple <laughs> weeks ago. Or read. Or like last week sometime. I'm like, hey, real quick, what should I watch right now? And your response was just, give me a minute. <laughs> And I ended up. I was like, "Well, if I have your rapt attention, yeah." I ended up finishing the Rings of Power, and I like the ending of it. Good, yeah, but cool. Sorry, sorry to derail it. No, I would love to talk about that more. But cross that you forgot him in uh, Steve is the counting of the horsemen. Jesus, Jesus, yeah. You have a little bit right there. Did you want to? Did you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Stupid. I don't know why I didn't notice. I don't know. <laughs> I just saw it. And I was like, I don't know what you want to do there. I didn't yeah. even read your comments on the notes this time. So I'm just hoping. <laughs> so not hoping, the, but you know. This part also uh, has a pretty good quote from Lysander. Um, they make the brave choice, the stupid choice. They choose to stay and fight. And or they choose to stay to fight and die with honor, uh, which strikes me as a change in Lysander, um, kind of openly admitting that honor is a stupid prospect in a war like this. And maybe this is extrapolating his views a little bit too much. And maybe it's fine to recognize that a choice is stupid, but to go through with it anyway and be honorable in that choice for the sake of being honorable, but it does kind of feel like a stark difference from that actionless man that he seems to have grown out of. Totally get it. I do want to bring this up because I definitely agree. Wasn't it? Isn't that Atlas that says that? Or is it? No, it's Lysander. I just have to make sure for my own sanity. after the barrage. I'm pretty sure it's just internal monologue. I could be be entirely wrong, but. No, you're right. It is, it is absolutely a completely different character step. I mean, not, not completely different, I should say. It is a massive change and really shows us the difference in sort of that war and reality has brought down upon Lysander's head and shoulders. I mean, like this is, this is him reckoning with what's actually real in front of him. Maybe not for the first time, but at least especially in the context of the rim the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the idea of honor up until basically the battle of the of the Ladon or really maybe all the way up until his confrontation with Alexander was kind of a nebulous sort of vaguity <laughs> that mm-hmm. uh <clears throat> meant a whole lot but didn't have any context in his head and understanding the choices that come with honor 
has made him do a complete turn on it, it seems like. Yeah, totally. It's a big, big old change, too. I mean, fuck. Mm-hmm. He, it, <clears throat> it seems as though he's made this decision, he's came to it in a big way, and he doesn't seem to be able to turn away from that idea mentally either now. Like, he has come to this conclusion... And this may demarcate a point in his brain and in all other time in which honor maybe separates from valor to some degree or, you know, if if either existed to begin with for him Mm -hmm. or either were true. It's not that they didn't exist, but if either were true. So Lysander finds himself capable because of the leech that is treating his lament poison and he takes a chance. He steals a grenade off of Zagria's belt, flings it at Alice, who turns and slaps it out of the air like the badass that he is. Doesn't even fucking notice. He's got the cestus in one hand. He's just using it with the other one to just go pop and just knocks <laughs> it out of the air. Lysander then also flings Zagria's razor at him, which takes him in the shoulder in that moment, wounding the Fear Knight. Lysander then manages to get Diomedes into his, an escape pod and saves him, launching him into space. Atlas is not very pleased when he did this as he wanted both Lysander and Diomedes alive with him. I am very, very curious how things would have changed if Lysander had gotten into that escape pod. Darrow wouldn't have picked up Diomedes, presumably, because this would have been piloted. Um, Maybe it would have been shot down and crashed because the Mm -hmm. trajectory was just dumb fucking luck that that it didn't get annihilated upon exit like everybody assumed right. it would um but regardless this whole this whole situation is pretty fucked here's here's where we get a reveal additionally that uh atalantia had ordered both lysander and diomedes dead so it's mm-hmm. kind of curious that atlas pretty calloused in his personal life up until this point and certainly for the rest of this section by the horrifying orders that he follows and conducts on his own but he's he is still willing to defy those orders to keep keep him and seemingly even more strangely diomedes alive diomedes has a particular importance much later so i think that we can talk about diomedes as that approaches that one but lysander is for completely different reasons i think that diomedes was kept as a key maybe to a door and lysander is perhaps for this other consideration we're getting too much later down the line but he is willing to your point he is willing to even stretch his orders for what feels like kind of the first time and this is maybe only because of the very serious consideration that is Everything else that's kind of weighing on him that we find out, but the only other time is, and it's a stretch to say that he's defying orders in that situation. But when Lysander uh, escapes his imprison his imprisonment with the what did they call themselves with Alexander and the Knights? What were their what was their the title of their little band? Oh God, what did he call him? I forget. I totally forget. It wasn't the Knights of Sidonia. But Sidonia. I know who you're talking about. But I no, feel like but it was it, something similar to yeah. that. Yeah. Still, that's the only other time that I can think of where it, it's maybe conceivable to call that defiance of orders or, or kind of stretching his station a little bit. 
Yeah, it's definitely, definitely. Oh, you're talking about Atlas's knights. No, I'm talking about Alexander's. No. Oh, yeah. Don't remember. Okay, yeah. never mind. I was like, Atlas's knights were like legions, but yeah. Anyway, yeah. okay. I'm talking that right. little yeah. crew that Do not remember. escaped on the bike. Yeah, the little with... three person. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, you're right. That was probably the only other time that he sort of disobeyed in large part. Ooh. So this chapter ends with a reveal that Roan and the Praetorians are working with Atlas. Damn, 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 damn. This made me really understand. I mean, not to the depth of understanding that we get a little bit later, but understand the outbursts and the sort of change in characteristics of Roan's behavior before leaving. Yeah, that was a that was that really made me turn my head a little bit. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> How deep does this shit go? Who's all <laughs> secretly working for Atlas? Is it is it Severo? Does it go that deep? Does it what how far is Atlas's reach? Yeah, that's a great it's a great question, isn't it? There's mm. a lot of there's a lot of lingering lingering thoughts about what Atlas is and what he's capable of. But we're going to explore a lot of that the rest of this week. I realized that I kind of forgot to mention within this little chapter as well that and we we did talk about of course Fa being the tool, but specifically coming up over the the intercom and referring to him as all father atlas all father pretty fucking wild it's good to be a god feels good to be a god God. (laughs) (laughs) it's funny because both of them would disagree with you on that oh oh, for sure (laughs) as they do later yeah i don't think i agree with it myself (laughs) (laughs) all right cool with that we get into chapter 46 darrow the sun is down as the Archie pulls up on the wreckage of the Battle of the Kalaki, Severo is celebrating and Darrow is incredibly surprised by what was accomplished here by Fa in this ambush. Darrow wants context, and so they agree to get closer to the wreckage while investigating. We've talked about scale being kind of difficult to grasp when we're talking about these big warships. And, uh, True, yeah. This is no exception to that. And I'm really excited to see what this debris field might look like in an adaptation, whatever might come of that. Like these, these ships are behemoths compared to the Archimedes in general, but compared to the Archimedes specifically, they're cities. They're, they're large cities (laughs) floating Mm -hmm. in rubble in front of them, multiple of them. And to take that in alone is unfathomable but to sort of take that in and then be able to suss out what might have transpired there is ridiculously impressive i couldn't do it yeah to to well i mean right (laughs) pj of course you couldn't do it you don't stare at the aftermath of space naval battles and try to piece together what did or did not happen i really should start doing that more huh you really should you should really like it should become your YouTube hobby to look at space battles mm-hmm. and the way that those have played out over time. That would yeah. be really great. You should you should do that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's nothing. I uh, think that would. There's nothing negative that could come about by digging really, really deep into realistic sci-fi battle simulations. I'm, I'm sure that won't take up a significant portion of my life and bandwidth. <laughs> Not at all. No. Nope. Zero. <laughs> 
not only that, but good luck finding any real historical context on space battles. I'm sure um, I'm sure I could get really, really into like Warhammer 40K and have a pretty extensive wealth of knowledge that I could never actually get through all of it. But it all ties in historically, I'm sure. I don't know for sure. I don't know much about 40K, but... Yeah, forty k is maybe not the the example that I would lean on, but I, I love I love the thought and the dedication. <laughs> <laughs> Do that, so yeah. So pulling up the dust maker, the site is absolutely unbearable as we see thousands of colors being tethered together by wire into a giant obsidian crescent symbol. Ba really really troubles Darrow here as he's pulled out the worst in the old Volk Braves as well as the Askamani. Among the wreckage, they do find a signal from deeper in the Illuminium. Illuminium? 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 My brain is not on today. Illuminium. Yep, thank you. Uh Yep. Basic pronunciation. Gotcha. English is good. But in Illuminium, that communicates Athena's retreat to Hellison, the daughters of Ares' version of Tinos. Given their dire straits, they're left with only one option to go to Sungrave to connect with Ores a Megatorch to communicate with Athena to figure out where they are. I most appreciate the really conflicted, complicated internal monologue that we get from Darrow in this section, mm-hmm. recognizing that this is to his benefit. This is a boon for him at surface level. Arguable in reality, whether or not it actually is, but... At the at the face of it, it seems like two of my biggest adversaries are dead in the water now. And or two two fleets of my adversaries are dead in the water. But he's able to kind of step away from that and recognize that these are people experiencing horrible, horrible, horrifying deaths, and many of them at the hands of his former braves. Like people that he trained personally, all of this puts Fa at this really elevated, horrible position in Darrow's head, which is it's fun to see that that whole internal monologue culminate with him wanting Fa like skewered by his sword. Yeah, and there there aren't a and- ton of people like there there really aren't many times when Darrow mentions wanting personal vengeance against somebody no very true he's often not seeking that necessarily nearly as actively there was aja uh, throughout the series basically yeah there was also nero but you know didn't get nero yeah i can't think of anyone else maybe octavia at some point he might I mean, have the said jackal that. eventually yeah. but in in the very end of the series uh, not right. really up until that point but basically after the box octavia didn't necessarily need to die Although that seemed like the only way that she was going to give away power. So, yeah, she needed to die. Mm-hmm. But not out of, like, vengeance. Not, like, this type of, like, I'm coming for you with my sword right now. <laughs> like, I want to skewer you myself. Harmony? Righteous, vitriolic hatred. Is Harmony on that list? No, Harmony wasn't really on that list. Okay. She might be... She just kind of got away. Now, after Ulysses. Well, I mean, she's dead. But yes. He doesn't know that. Oh, Lyria's I mean, there. Yeah, she, Lyria knows yeah, it. Lyria's so we there. assume, but he has. She hasn't necessarily shared that story yet because of the way that he figures out. So, right. you know, 
that could also be another That's side true. here. And we still um, didn't see her die on page, so. I mean, we heard her scream in Anessa Pit Vipers, so I'm pretty sure pretty sure she's dead. Or and she's then the whole thing exploded. Some human Pit Viper hybrid now. That, I think, is also what you proposed back in the episode, <laughs> and I think I screamed at you. So, yeah. <laughs> Tying together all these bodies, very bad. Not fun. Oop. Not, not great. But no, it, it's Ore, did, did, did he say four kilometers or 40 kilometers for the size of that crescent? I think it's 40, 400 meters. It's oh. thousands of bodies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that. That's probably more it's, realistic. Yeah, I was going to say, because it's te- it's terrifying. That's a lot of bodies, no matter how, which way, which way you cut it. Yeah. Yeah, four kilometers would be like, yeah, we took the dust maker and turned it into uh, an obsidian crescent because that's how big it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> terrifying. Terror. Bodies. So Ore pulls out a quote from the path and Darrow finishes her sentence while they're kind of discussing things with Severo. When life springs forth, death follows behind. When goodness is found, evil is close at hand. The path straddles the boundary between these things. So Severo reacts to the comment and call it, calling it interpreting a dusty ass tome. Darrow fires back that it was his father's dusty ass tome and Severo bitingly asks how that worked out for him and then glares at Cassius. Their argument is settled and then interrupted by a heartbeat that they hear in an escape pod. They rescue the man and quickly realize that he is a raw, which Ore quickly confirms to be Diomedes. I really enjoy these philosophical little study moments between Darrow and Ore. And I also find the banter and tension between everybody to be compelling to read and almost a distillation of the solar system at large right now with Darrow representing the unity overall aspect of the Republic and Severo representing the vitriol for the society, Cassius kind of representing the society itself, Ore representing the rim and Lyria representing low colors as a whole. And I know it's so much more complicated than that, and so many holes can be poked in that idea of of how that breaks down. And there's overlap and there's problems, but I still find it fun that we've got this really diverse, colorful crew, and there's very little, very little that's not represented other than um, the Obsidian tribes at large within this crew. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's arguments that you're, I mean, the story by and large lacks like yellow POVs, for instance, or like any sort of perspective on yellows. Yeah, I guess I'm leaning heavily into Lyria being the representation of like low colors. All the other colors. (laughs) Everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no other high colors either. There's not whites. There's not. Right. Silvers. Silvers. Coppers. Like there's a lot missing there, but I see where you're shopping at. Though. It feels yeah. very inclusive. Well, especially for the groups that we see most often represented inside of the series, right? Like this whole cluster is a 
republic faction, which is cool. That could only be attainable or visible within a republic. You've got one gold who is secretly half red. You've got one gold who is literally a red that was returned that was turned into a gold. You have an actual gold. You have an actual red, and you have a pink. <laughs> Reds are completely outnumbering everybody else on the ship right now. It's kind of true. Yeah, there's two and a half reds yep. of the five people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unless, it unless is kind Darrow of nuts, but it's also strictly counts as half a red at this point. That's a that's an I argument think that that's he hard counts to, as a gold. Just yeah. you know, I I think it's I think it's tough to qualify. And again, that gets into like the what what makes a color kind yeah. of argument, and which the, should be broken world. down at this point by now. By, yeah, we've we've by broken it down of more the than society, of the republic yeah. as right. Like its yeah. core tenet is like fuck this system. Yeah, I think that they're not aiming to maintain it, but they understand where it is and eventually it'll dissolve away, but you have to mm-hmm. respect it where it lies for now. Right. So, yeah, kind of just is the way that it is. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I really like the way that the crew, is, the crew comes together. You've got this trio of brothers and then you've got the other two that are great additions. And I don't mean that in a demeaning fashion, but, you know, <laughs> literally institute the, brothers. The other ones. <laughs> and then and then them. <laughs> And then the girls. <laughs> oh, but yeah, I, I really like the group. All right. If anybody has has a problem with how we're talking this episode, just blame the eggs. It's the eggs. It's, it's the just... eggs. <laughs> it could be the back to back shots of alcohol that we took for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we did do that. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've got my bottle of Fernet mm-hmm. right there if we want more. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the prisoner leads us to the conflict at core here between our brothers and Ore. Sebro, in particular, is pretty upset as Cassius's defense of the man, and he levies all of the different reasons that he should be allowed to live and disagrees with the possibility of torturing him entirely. The group settle on no torture, of course, assuming that Ore will be able to get information out of the man. Agreeing on no torture is the amicable way to do it, but you know <laughs> you gotta hold it's people accountable to that shit. Ore does make a really good point that Diomedes is I I can't remember conditioned. I think she uses the term conditioned against torture. Like it's gonna be futile anyway, even if you try. Mm-hmm. It might feel kind of good to torture somebody because that's just kind of the place that we're at right now as a people. <laughs> that's but, how low we are. <laughs> <laughs> but not not useful, not smart. Don't do it. Please. Yeah. Bad time. Bad time. Don't do it. Don't do it. Bad. Yeah. I I totally see that. And in in the present site it's it's a lot to it's a lot to interrogate but then ca- then especially as does the torture anyway yeah that <laughs> that's that's why i say it's a lot to interrogate because then in the end we we ultimately cut <laughs> like, later to Severo literally peeling his fingers off and pulling teeth almost immediately almost immediately. <laughs> it's maybe a couple of hours <laughs> it's it's a couple of pages i'll tell you what i mean no it's a couple chapters but still yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of Severo, he and Darrow kind of have it 
out to end this chapter. They talk of jealousy, but I think that Severo delivers something really incisive in this chapter that we've talked about in discourse over a lot of the course of the series. Um, and in general, especially this, this sequel series here, he says, Honor, dipshit. The Rim and Cassius have something in common. They're new to this war. They don't know what we know. Honor, if it ever existed, was the first casualty. It's a good point. And it ties in really well with that comment we talked about from Lysander last chapter. It's a dead concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Honor mm-hmm. don't matter when your opponent cheats. Yeah. And is it? That's another question. Is it cheating? If there's... Well, if it's annihilation, if the if the goal is annihilation, there's not... There's not rules of warfare, really. Yeah, there's not war crimes. I, I definitely got into this discussion <laughs> with a fan of our podcast about the extent of war crimes in <laughs> the Red Rising universe. It's like everything is a war crime. <laughs> yeah, but... As far as that goes. Yeah. It's... Shout out, Celine. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a great thing to... It's a nut to crack. It's a hard nut to crack. Yeah, yes, you have war crimes in um, an annihilation-based war. Right. Yeah, when you're when you're facing down, and it only gets worse as we approach the aid me as a as a prospect at the end of this mm-hmm. week too. So we'll we'll talk about that. But yeah, it it is not. This is this is bad. And yeah. war crimes are they real? <laughs> a YouTube video. <laughs> war, war crimes are they real? <laughs> <laughs> Do they matter? A red rising. A YouTube, a Red Rising Universe YouTube holodrama exclusive. For the record, <laughs> war crimes absolutely exist in the world that we live in. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Ooh, all right. With that, we go into chapter 47, The Bringer of Darkness, the namesake of my egg-based cocktail <laughs> this week. Our egg tales. Our egg tales. <laughs> Bringer of Darkness starts with us conversing with Roan as we also find ourselves back on Aya for the first time since Iron Gold. Conversation with Roan is really sad, is a really sad one about the way that greys are raised. And you can't help but understand exactly why he's done what he's done. In particular, his whole, I'll tell you this because I know you are angry speech that just shows the lengths to which he would go to preserve Lysander, the loons, and his future place in society, his being Lysander's, not Roan's own. He also answers the question of where the poison came from as it was on the cloak that was picked up from the red, which explains why the red was shivering more than just his wounds. What do you think of Roan and his place here and his discussion about patriots and betrayers? I completely understand Roan at the end of this speech and why he did what he did. I actually appreciate him. A lot more after this conversation. I disagree with his general politics, but I respect his conviction and sort of adherence to his own moral compass, even when arguably it's a transgression against against House Loon, for sure, and against his station and the oaths that he's sworn to uphold. But that delineation between being a patriot and being a servant, or what what was the other term that he used? It was patriot and betrayer. 
is one of the things that he said, unless you're thinking that, of that something else. It's kind of defining himself as a patriot over a effectively a servant to House Loon. Do do do. So he's he basically putting putting the society itself above the commands of the singular house that he was kind of assigned to this sort of kennel that he was assigned to the ludus which is what he was assigned to at the time yeah i mean i'm reading through the entire speech here i might be really like maybe i was just extrapolating on what he meant by it but so what he says is the future of the society should be decided by its patriots not its betrayers okay um is specifically what he says yeah but his whole quote you are not the only one with anger. Diomedes was your friend, but barely. So take a moment. Weigh your loss against ours. We who have given our blood, our lives, our future to House Loon. We who have abdicated our legacy for ourselves by forsaking the chance for children. We who have who would give our lives for you if you but asked. He sets his Praetorian dagger on his thigh. And consider perhaps that we are due more than gratitude, gilded though it may be. Yeah, so that... I understand, I agree with, I appreciate, but feels antithetical <laughs> to the idea of the society and and how how the society functions. I think Lysander kind of agrees with those statements too. He is a little bit of a black sheep when it comes to gold leadership within the society as we've talked extensively about kind of trying to bring the idea back to golds being shepherds instead of oppressors and rulers so this should ring true with him but it feels so very much like the startings of revolutionist ideologies and kind of like he would fit a lot better within the republic than he does within the society very interesting. I, for me, I do view this little this little speech in in a way similar. I think that I think immediately of Holiday and Trig, and how they probably had experienced similar teachings from Rome, being that they were his students, and as such took that lesson a very different way, and that ended up being sort of the way that they went is realizing that well, if all we're going to get is this gilded gratitude, you know, we're not going to we're not going to continue on that path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a really good so, point. I had completely forgotten. I, I think about that, that that's connection. sort of the the evidence to some degree of your point. I don't think that he himself is a rebel or anything like that. But just saying, you know, treat our color with dignity. We aren't just lapdogs. No, I I don't think he's a rebel either. But I think that yeah, if somebody were to get a little voice recording of him saying that, he would be mm. disposed of for. Sure. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Wrong think. Uh, how do you want to call it? Yeah. Thought crime. Yeah. Totally get it. Yeah. It it begs a lot of things and it leaves questions too of, of where Roan will be headed in the future to some degree. Right. So obviously he's on Lysander's side. That's what he's kind of proven here. But also knows Atlas and knows Atlas well. And what does that mean? It's not very good to know atlas well 
I don't think. <laughs> not really good for anyone else. It's great for you to know Atlas well, I think, on a personal level, as proven later. But, like, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Still a little still a little messy. Very messy. As far as I'm concerned. I love this view that we get here of Atlas's ships. And we can assume that there are more with the naming conventions that have been used between the couple that we've seen so far. With Lethe and Styx. And I assume his other ships must be named after the other Greek rivers in the underworld of Hades. Lethe specifically is off the books, which is funny because that name means oblivion or forgetfulness, uh, which is just a wonderful little pairing that we get from Pierce. Way to go. We then enter a room full of Gorgon's chanting as Fa has made his way to the garter. What's really funny about me getting to this section right now with that mm-hmm. name is I'm also reading Ninth House. Mm, yep. <laughs> Which Lethe is the name of the house mm-hmm. that uh, Alex belongs to. Yeah. One of the print, it's Princeton, right? It's Yale. Yale. Damn it. I knew it was one of my legs. I couldn't remember which. Mm. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. what I get the most out of, a, of like those chants from the Gorgons is strangely how human <laughs> this all is. And like it, it's in this really fucked up, detached way. And when you really sit down and think about why they're chanting, it's sickening. But they're rooting for their team. They're rooting for their sports mm-hmm. team, basically. <laughs> like we root for their sports team. team. Like, it, it's man. But it does kind of bring a an air of humanity to this I imagine it like a break room that Lysander walks past. And it's just like a bunch of guys around a table, like eating pretzels, watching watching a football game on TV or something. But I know it's not necessarily yeah. exactly that, but that's a Yeah, it's more like a fraternity of evil. I mean, I get it. You're getting frat house vibes. I'm seeing Nazi rallies. You know, they're different. They're the same. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 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 little little day, little B. No, I, I do get it there. <laughs> Show me the difference on these two images. <laughs> that's a dark, that's a brutal joke. Taking taking ten thousand steps back from that, I do see. Joke. God damn it! Give me just a moment. <laughs> give me give me just a minute, guys. It's uh, the egg talking. I do. <laughs> Egg talk. This is not a podcast anymore. This is egg talk. <laughs> um, God damn it. We are words and egg. <laughs> we are we are egg excellent. No, but actually I do see your point on the human angle of it all, right? Like it does make the seem less like they're just warriors. And it does add this like layer of fraternity in with these gorgons and sort of this the support that they have for each other, despite being the most evil, vile motherfuckers in this entire thing, is kind of astonishing and shocking in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... What do you think is more damning? If you die and you like get to like explain your transgressions to whatever higher power might be out there, is it better to be Atlas... Or, like, a Gorgon who's 
really, really enjoying the shit that he's doing. <laughs> I would want to be what's his name, like Fragilis or whatever his his name is that comes up later. The the Obsidian that's like, this isn't a good time. <laughs> 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 the very <Yeah>. intelligent obsidian <laughs> yeah not that yeah. not that anyone isn't but he was like very verbose and well-spoken mm-hmm. but yeah i'd rather be that guy yeah than that, random gorgon too but I mean, atlas like, in what's, general what's more yeah. damning to be the one in charge burdened by the the horrors of what you have to do for the for the good of the society or the grunt that is carrying out all these horrific deeds and seemingly cheering about it. I, man, I think it's still Atlas. I mean, I think no matter how you measure this, it's Atlas. <laughs> I think it's still probably <laughs> Atlas. You're right. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. fuck, man. I don't know. At least Atlas, maybe if you really sat down with everybody, you'd get the, get the rub, I guess, about it. Like, he, Atlas is not a happy person. He's not... He doesn't derive enjoyment no. from the actions mm-hmm. or the the plots that he procures hatches. and yeah, hatches. But he's good at it. But these Gorgons are enthusiastic. To say the least. Mm-hmm. Just to throw it back because it will never leave my mind. The moment in during the Battle of the Ladon when he catches Darrow... And they're going to cut his dick off and feed it to him and then violate him for hours on end is like always what I think about when I think of Atlas first. When we're like, we talk about all these good other positive things from time, not positive, but, you know, like character traits that we enjoy. And I went, <laughs> and then I went oh, no, oh, <laughs> just don't mm, forget that he's mm, also that guy. He is <laughs> also said that guy. out loud. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Maybe he thought that was a fun time. Maybe that's like, are you kink shaming? I don't think he did in this circumstance. I think Darrow's consent was violated. Yeah. Yeah, he was. That's not good. That's bad. It's horrifying and um, awful and irredeemable. His irredeemable. There there is a permanent black spot on Atlas's soul. is, Is it only irredeemable if it happens or is it? No, it's it's not. It's not the case. Cons- it's just it's somehow worse. Conspiracy to feed someone their own dick. Is that a crime? Yeah. Probably. <laughs> Probably it should be. be. It's it's at the very least it's definitely assault. So let's talk more about Atlas, but in a <laughs> no war context. crimes in society. <laughs> no war crimes. No war crimes whatsoever. Atlas himself is armless and waiting for his arms to be returned to him, but his eyes have been fixed back into his head, and his face has returned as they've removed the guise of Helios. Xanthus, of whom is the violent in this scene, what good work on his part, I guess. I love this conversation that kind of happens between the two in that moment, and how he, and like also with Lysander, and how he just unceremoniously kills Helios, or has Helios killed with an injection. Kind of brutal. Oh, totally, totally brutal. I yeah. do love the description of the little red nubs that are his red arms in nubs, the moment. Yeah. <laughs> but I had this very quick fleeting hope that they were actually giving a maybe ceremonious honorable death to Helios when he mentioned sending him into the void. Like I was thinking maybe it was almost like a sun death. Like like maybe a traditional space burial when you're farther away from the sun. Nah, 
No, just, just shooting them just into space. Putting the dog down. Yeah. Just, they put the dog down and then they're just shooting the body out like trash. Probably with trash. Probably with trash. Because they don't want anyone to find it. Oh, that's a good point. They don't they don't shoot it out at all, do they? I mean, not here, but I assume they do at some point. I would think maybe cremate. I assume that that was the whole void thing was like send his body to the void. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I don't yeah, know. Definitely not a sun death, though. It's it's yeah. much more dishonorable. Uh, is it Just dishonorable? Imagine, like, it's not honorable, but it's kind of void of anything. It's just. Like like a fart that's ended. <laughs> what? Egg talk. A fart that's ended. <laughs> I mean, like Helios is like if Helios was a fart, the fart just ends. It's not a dishonorable end to the fart, but it also isn't a triumphant like upswing in. <sighs> No one stuck a match in front of it, you right. know, to like yeah, give it there's nothing the real flame it deserved. <laughs> <laughs> nothing. It's, it's just no, but fades. they could have scented it with poopery, you know. Like he could have he could have febrezed it afterwards, right. but we don't yeah. get that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The fart ends, the stench lingers for a second, and then it fades. Mm-hmm. Like we all do. We're just farts in the wind. <laughs> <laughs> we are just farts in the <laughs> What is happening, Crossland? This is you. (laughs) I know it's me. (laughs) I'm going to blame the egg, which is your fault. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. The egg was supposed to make you silent, (laughs) not funny. (laughs) Oh, today's Um, a good. It's a good episode so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you did you think anything else about um, Atlas in this moment having that conversation about like previously he's done this, <laughs> he's done this before. Yeah, this is not new. Yeah, that's that's a prospect to to think upon. the The fact that the first time was a lot more difficult for his arms. Do we have any? Like, I'm going to have to go back and look and see if there's any situations where we interact with Atlas and his arms are all fucked up. I don't remember. Not that I recall. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really don't know. But Kind of wild, though. It is kind of wild. And I'm curious if there's any situations where we were secretly interacting with Atlas without realizing it. I'm sure that there are more than a handful in the larger story for our characters, but in the immediate sense, I can't think of any, but mm-hmm. it does. It does beg the question. It does. Yeah. The fear Knight is truly terrifying. He is in like action figure with removable arms at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and know, eyes. I mean, you can and like swap out look the, kids face mask. Yeah. Swap out the arms. Just pop them in, pop them out. He's modular. A peel and press face as well. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I would assume probably not other colors, just based on size. Like he's he didn't get rid of his torso or anything. So I'm I'm guessing he's always a gold. Yeah. Maybe an obsidian. I don't know. True. Fair point. Hmm. 
This makes Atlas much more of a boogeyman. Yeah, and he's got a cut line on his neck, right? Does he? Yeah, it was described way back in the scene in the garden. Um, mm. They're talking about like old wounds and scars with Lysander. Okay. We could have his head transplanted. Mm-hmm. He's just... How much do you think that costs? Money isn't real. Money, yeah. yeah. <laughs> at, the, at this scale. Okay. Or in, donuts. I don't know. Yeah. Number of fucking, like, pegasi. <laughs> like, it's two and a half pegasi only if you get them from the discount carver. If you get them from the premium carver. You don't want a discount pegasus. You really don't. Like, then you got to go to the orchard, and at the orchard, you can find the good Pegasi, but they're they're spendy, man. Yeah, I got a discount Pegasus so like once, one. and he just <laughs> like the the wings were backwards, so I had to <laughs> I had to steer. <laughs> I I had to tell the I had to be the eyes for the Pegasus flying. He, he, Oh, you're flying butt first. Okay, got it. Yeah. <laughs> so confused. <laughs> I guess I didn't imagine that all the musculature would be flipped as well, but here we are. Now we're here. <laughs> all right. Well, Atlas shortly thereafter goes on a wonderful speech and tirade that I'm going to read its entirety of because it is so goddamn good. So excuse me while I get to ranting for just a second here. Lysander begins this with the question, do you hate your family so much? Do you hate your home so much that both have ceded any right to exist? He's offended. Alice returns saying, hate. You think this is personal? You think this some petty vengeance or payment for not being given up as a hostage to Luna when I was a child? Disgusting. I'm not Adrius Augustus, he says. His eyes and face un usually an impenetrable as a vault, for once relay the contents they protect. Pain. Loss. Absolute sorrow. I know every poem etched onto every step on the dragon's spine, every turn in the family tunnels, every stony expression in faces that fill our ancestral shrine, every shadow in the bedroom of my father and mother. I know Sungrave sounds, its smells, its social cruelty, and its physical beauty. I know the flowers that are grown on the walls of the Stygian wells, which my father would leave on my mother's pillow. I know the egg stink flavor of the water of the Phlegathon, that sacred artery which nourished seven centuries of my people. I saw my sister born here and my, felt my mother's blood on her pudgy skin as I helped my father wrap her in linen. Sungrave will always be my home, Lysander. Yet my home must die. My family tree must be torn up from its roots and burned to the last green branch. I am in agony, but these matters are not personal. These are matters of state, the highest matters of humankind. My feelings are irrelevant, as are yours. That's a speech. That's a really, really well said bit of prose. And I, I completely understand and appreciate that sorrow. Um, I do have to point out that hypocrisy of it, though, in that he's choosing to defy Atalantia's orders and save Lysander. It, it might be strategic. It is strategic. It's still um, a matter of state in the end. Exactly. It's That's it, what he's doing. It, it is yeah. in opposition to the state-mandated 
execution that he was ordered to fulfill. And that said, as every speech has been in this series, but this book specifically, it was amazing and heartfelt and wonderful. And I, I am so, so thankful that we have such an amazing speech writing author that we get to explore. Yeah. I mean, he gets to go on these diatribes and makes us appreciate and understand a character like Atlas of whom could be this sort of faceless monster. He could be a Darth Vader. Like he could be the terror in the background that we don't really need to understand more. But now without getting crappy prequel movies, we understand who he is Mm -hmm. internally. Yeah. Yeah. Feel bad for him sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that to the point of the state, this is he is crafting a state, right? He he's saying matters of state from like a a larger perspective, but in the same way that the whiskey rebellion was technically illegal by all stature, Washington going and fighting against those that were rebelling over the whiskey tax was necessary to maintain the state. And so in many ways I kind of see them sort of similarly where it's like, well, we had to break the laws to maintain the thing that we built because we didn't do the laws well enough to maintain or like adjust for these type of things. And so maintain the state and then refine so that we don't have to do that ever again. Right. But yeah, sucks to kill your whole family and ancestral home. In oh, the my process. God. <laughs> Except for his mom. But we'll get there. <laughs> We're not monsters. Yeah, fuck. What a fucking line. Oh, God. So we then get to Lysander's follow-up questions, of which he allows for him to ask as he leans back down into the the little pool or tub of water that he's in and says, you can ask me questions or you can try to stab me with the scalpel. (laughs) (laughs) That he knows that he had secreted off the tray because Atlas has to have the mind's eye. Like, there's no way he doesn't or has something very similar to it in him that allows for him to perceive so much and be so fucking aware. Because, man, nothing sneaks up on this man. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing is outside of his purview. We get a serious question, so I'm just going to kind of, like, list them off in, in kind of the way that they have it here. Fa is a Gorgon. Fa is, in fact, Ragnar's father. A father, according to Atlas, ain't just a genetic dad, though, which explains his feelings towards Ajax. This attack that we're witnessing has largely been in motion for about 12 months, and Vagnar is Atlas's closest friends. 12 years, sorry, 12 years. And explains how he managed to conquer the Ascomani, and how Fa, in many ways, is an obsidian darrow. He explains the consequences of Dark Age that we saw from Ephraim with the obsidians and confirms that this was his plan the whole time using Xenophon as his Gorgon agent. The the unfolding of this section and this secret mission and how it relates to all of the other things that we've seen in the previous books is fucking satisfying. So cool. (laughs) It's an entire POV. Like an entire POV was dedicated to Atlas's plan, basically. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's more to it than that, yeah. but... Right, 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 right. Fuck, man. So cool. And feels feels planned from the start. Doesn't feel like tacked on for this book. Feels like this was the intention. 
No, no. We definitely even hypothesized that Faw at the end in, in many of our wrap-up episodes, we talked about our theory, and we both were of the opinion that Faw was Atlas's agent and that there was enough that kind of pointed us in that direction that we believed that to be the case. I stopped believing that at some Good point. Good on us. Totally. Yeah, that's fair. But that's fair. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was going back through some of our prediction episodes and whatnot to just find those little inklings that we got over time. And that was something that we were that at the very least I was very ironclad about, in my opinion, on that. But yeah, I don't recall it. Yeah, that's fair. It's been a while. You didn't recall what we were talking about last week when it was last week. Sounds like me. The fall reveal is excellent, of course, that he is working fully for Atlas and that like this is the extent. The thing that we didn't predict necessarily is that he was a plant to begin with, right? Like we thought that he was working for him, but that he might have like legitimately like came into power on his own or something like that. Like we didn't the rest of the falsehood wasn't inside of our guess, but sort of the outlay in general of his place was was our idea that we were mm. kind of picking at. Yeah. Oh, my God. And especially mirroring Faws and Obsidian Darrow especially makes their sort of mental rivalry that Darrow paints fascinating, I think, because he's killing this sort of version of himself in some way. Yeah. And I I think to know it's not a coincidence that Darrow starts making even more bold connections between them after this chapter. Uh, when mm-hmm. he sees the carnage and the strategy that's uh, laid out in front of him in the in the wreckage. I don't yeah. think it. it's very clearly not a coincidence that we get this reveal and we get the direct textual comparison and call him in Obsidian Darrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Darrow yeah. starts... I mean, he always was. He was previously making some sort of comparisons and, and self-reflections in that sense, but it's much more blatant in the next chapter. Much clearer. Yeah, definitely. We then get a little bit of a speech here from Atlas that I'm just going to read just the line of, right? But he says, division is a cancer, Lysander, and I'm excising the affected tissue. And A, TGR's delivery of this whole section is fucking incredible. He makes for just a ridiculous atlas in all ways, shapes, and forms. He is truly repugnant in all the ways that you'd expect, but he is also strategic and surgical and dramatic. And, oh, but Atlas kind of comes to his conclusion that that's what is here to be done. He actually believes that Lysander makes a much better heir than Atalantia because of his penchant for unifying folks. Lysander somewhat honorably disagrees with Atlas's notion, but he quickly explains that this is a sunk cost and that Lysander doesn't really have a way out of this maze. It's either take this path or you're dead. Um, His power in many ways is stripped of him, Lysander, in this moment, despite simultaneously being offered all the power in the known system. This, at the very least, as we've alluded to, kind of rectifies that sense of hypocrisy that I've been talking about. It does, ironically, kind of set up this potential for a fracturing of gold leadership with Atlas siding with Lysander and therefore rebelling against Atalantia. So, unless. Literally everybody else follows in step. 
there's going to be kind of a mini civil war within probably within the 200 at the very least, if not on a larger scale within the society remnant. Could could definitely be. Here's here's the the thing that I would latch into myself at the very least or that I latch into to ground myself is, yeah, if Atlas hangs over the whole meeting like a sort of Damocles, if he comes down on Atalantia, no one's going to bat an eye. Like, no one is going to care, <laughs> I think, <laughs> to some degree. Probably true. Even, even if it's even if it's secret, even if it's whatever, like, Atlas is the fear knight and truly has like some foundational control and like puppet is puppet string this whole fucking operation. Like he is all the success that the society has had by and large is mostly because of his hand or at the very least the careful weighting of the scales. The, yeah, that's a very good point. And yeah, even if they don't see that importance on him, they do see the atrocities that he's wrought and yeah even if they care they're not gonna say anything (laughs) all it would take is one of the 200 with you know their dick in their mouth and they would probably all shut up (laughs) not that that's a good way to lead by any stretch but you kind of get that impression that that might that could happen which is why he's down for using lysander because he's like this is a much better method than my method (laughs) But this chapter ends with Lysander accepting Atlas's offer when it really wasn't a choice, <laughs> much of a choice. Yeah, and I'll keep living. The bringer cool. of darkness. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay, hey, nice. And the the bringer of darkness hails him the bringer of light. It's like the ship's name. It, it, it the, is the book's what? name. What do you think? Do you think that was on purpose? Uh, it could <laughs> should be. It could should be. It, could, it should it could, probably be. Could, could should be is uh could should be. Good wish. <laughs> oh this is a good episode. <laughs> I hope people are okay with us just laughing as though we are deranged and high. <laughs> I can't believe that I'm gone. not high right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I know that I'm not, um, but I'm, I, I'm I know I'm not too. But yeah, <laughs> if you were to like read this transcript back to me, I'm like, there's something up with that guy. <laughs> there's there's something definitively up with that guy. Cool. Chapter forty eight. Darrow the tickler. Tickle tickle. So obviously this is referring to the knife but <laughs> i think it, Darrow, it could be cassius he's he's a frisky one he i mean sure is he is he a frisky one seems... i don't think cassius has gotten laid in a while <laughs> <laughs> no of course he, it could be when a part would of cassius's have? problem we know he yeah, has right, slept know. with ore and that's the only yeah. person that he's like really spent time could have been with Pytha. I mean, could have, he could he have been ten years Pytha, but I don't think so. We assume that he's like perfectly straight. He could be bi. He could be. He could have That's double true. the prospects than we're even giving him credit for. But I think that the still the still answer is no. Yeah, <laughs> the still still no, still no. Well, that means Lysander has had sex more recently than Cassius has. Yeah, probably. I don't love that. Is the last that. person that Cassius had sex with 
Virginia? I wouldn't necessarily think so, but I don't think the story provides us with another answer. So maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Returning <laughs> to the topic at hand. Um, Dara wakes to a start as Lyria beats on his door, shouting that Severo is torturing Diomedes. They quickly arrive and Lyria manages to open the doors via fire pro- fire protocols that Cassius taught her in the intermediate in the intermediate days in the days in the days. Darrow is shocked by the affront that this is that his best friend having pulled teeth and then electrocuting the nerves of their prisoner here as he sees Darrow does manage to talk the pained man down in this moment. I know Severo is a deranged, twisted monster in a person suit. But holy <laughs> fuck, is that over the top? <laughs> yeah, this is this is a lot. Oh, Severo, that is even even for a torturer. Pretty fucking horrible. Yeah. What do you expect him to say at that point? Right. Ow, my tooth. Put put it back. <laughs> yeah, after you pulled it out. Oh no! <laughs> and what am I gonna do? Electrocuted the nerves. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's the thing that gets me the most. That's that's what's fucked up. That's what's the most fucked up. You know, I immediately in this moment rereading it today, imagined the tooth getting pulled, of course, and so the tooth is in like a tray somewhere, or maybe it's just on the ground because that's the way that this would probably be going. Could feed it to and. Him. Could feed it to him. Could be in his own mouth. Could be like stick your tongue out and hold your teeth. And then I immediately imagine it cutting to like the Ren and Stimpy teeth hole, nerve hole face episode with like the nerve wriggling there mm. <laughs> and then taking that wriggling nerve and hooking it up to a car battery. I imagine car it's battery also. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be a car battery. I don't know why. I but assume it's, it's got to like have a, that big like clipper. Like a stun baton or something. Like, I'm assuming mm, it's God. an actual like torture tool that Zebro has. baton? What do you think it okay, would be? Okay, like a stun toothpick? I, just, a stun baton would be like a whole thing in his I, mouth. I, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I meant something something like that sort of form factor of like yeah, a handheld yeah, sure. self-contained shocking implement. Oh, yeah. Just I mean, speaking of dentist work and dentistry, it's just like the little like sucky mouth thing that they have. But it it electrocutes you. But it's an electrode at the end of it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Severo does not necessarily strike me as the kind of person that is overly concerned about. Well, for that, that's one thing, but overly (laughs) concerned about the form factor of his torture tools. Uh, But I think he's probably perfectly fine with a car battery. (laughs) <laughs> yeah he'd be like sweet this is what i found in the closet oh, look mom God. it's ancient earth nickel batteries <laughs> oh it makes me think twice about licking nine volt batteries i'll tell you what i'll still do it <laughs> but i'll think twice about it yeah when i get old and lose my teeth you know the first thing that's happening is i'm sticking one of those right <laughs> on the gum do you do that to test batteries yeah of course <laughs> okay. i know i was just dumb <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean yeah of course i like batteries yeah of course i do what do you mean no who needs a battery tester when i have my tongue come on it works it does it's very effective mm-hmm. you can tell when it's working or not mm-hmm. 
this gets me into the smallest of a cut, cut, cut tangent, and then we're going to hop right we're back. Not You've seen the video of, of <laughs> God damn it, of, of my dad, all the all the boys in the Shaw family doing the battery licking contest no, that we did on Christmas. What? Oh my God. <laughs> we went for almost two minutes with nine volt batteries on our tongues. <laughs> Just screeching and drooling and... We're just so dumb. I'll find it for you because it's it's pretty good. I had no idea this was a thing before. Oh yeah. This yeah, up. yeah. All yeah. right. Well. Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. I don't. I genuinely don't recall who won. I think it might have been me, actually. But that's why you don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it was a while ago. It was like 2018, 2019, okay. 2019. Oh, that's funny. All right, back back to the topic at hand. Cassius follows him to kick his ass, but Darrow understands that this is just a reckoning that needs to happen between the two of them. We've seen all this tension. It's been building for weeks, and there need to be a release valve at some point, and here it is, reeling and showing its ugly face in the worst of ways on both of them in these moments, both tortured men in their own rights by the things that they've done and the things that have happened to them. And Cassius stands up for honor and that first and foremost, But Severo really digs deep into his character in just an absolutely brutal fucking fashion that is just gut-wrenching. Their their fistfight starts, their match begins, and they really have it out for each other. This feels therapeutic. (laughs) For everybody involved. Like, obviously for for Severo. Pretty sure for Cassius. But I think it it even feels therapeutic for Darrow. Definitely for Darrow. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, thank God. <laughs> this is done. Oh, I don't have to deal with this shit anymore. <laughs> yeah, right. What a relief. But in particular, like digging in on like the topic of Lysander and attacking him for like having no home for, you know, killing killing one rebel leader, but then also killing a sovereign for like fucking all of these different things up, but not committing to anything ever. And just sort of being this sort of outcast, I think, is just really incisive on his part. And specifically, I mean, it's it's brutal. And then there's this note where <coughs> Di- he, Cassius shouts back, Diomedes uh, is a prisoner of war. He has rights. And even Darrow, in his perspective, says, even I roll my eyes, <laughs> which is... <laughs> <laughs> tells you where we're at yeah <laughs> with the war crimes thing yeah yeah exactly it's I mean. yeah but then at at the same time right after that a sour worm a sour giggle worms through severo's teeth contorts into chest heaving laugh and i get back to my ren hoek comparison of which i just imagine the sort of space madness thing hitting <laughs> severo so hard here space madness but with reason, of course. Mm. Yeah, Severo's, Severo's in a bod spot. That seems to help, though. <clears throat> yeah. Couldn't save Julian. Couldn't protect Quinn. Couldn't keep Mustang intrigued. You're the <laughs> shallow end of the pool. <laughs> that is... <laughs> what, a, that is what a fucking insult. Absolutely the most brutal... <laughs> Insult that could have like come across Cassius, as far as we can understand, in the man. Sha- I mean, the shallow that's... end of the pool. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. We need. We need. 
All right, sushi, if you're listening, we need a pool party scene with everybody chilling in the deep end except for Cassius over alone in the shallow <laughs> end. <laughs> oh my god. Maybe a couple That's too I mean, good. No, probably not. We want to keep it light, so don't put Quinn, keep it light. Keep it don't light. put Quinn face down in the shallow end. Oh, um, no. <laughs> Quinn and Julian <laughs> just <laughs> Yeesh. Okay, <laughs> that's tough. <laughs> that's that's it's tough. The, it's the egg. Remember, it's the egg. It's it's the egg talk here. Yeah, it' gonna go drink to numb the boo boo. <laughs> You'll still hate yourself tomorrow, fraud. <laughs> this is cutting like, this is this yeah. is it doesn't in the grand scheme of thing we're dealing with intergalactic war <laughs> like not not intergalactic but like technically out extra solar system if we're dealing with the far ink Askamani. like we're, we're dealing with <laughs> war that extends past the reach of the solar system and Making fun of somebody for being an alcoholic <laughs> is somehow yeah. still super fucking cutting. Oof. And especially because they haven't really interacted in that way. And that's more of like a Darrow impression. And so Severo has just gained that from like overall experience with Cassius and like, you know, mm-hmm. it's just the impression that he levies. Tough. Tough. But the match between the pair ends. Severo, for the most part, is winning because he's used to fighting bigger men. Eventually, Cassius gets a bunch of good hits in, so it isn't just completely one-sided, of course, as they're both turned into various mashes of bruised colors. Let's not forget that also Cassius is, like, deep into drinking for the night, like, was was drinking himself (laughs) to sleep that night, and got called out of the room because Severo was torturing a man. So, like, Severo is stone-cold sober, used to fighting larger men used to fist fighting compared to Cassius Mm -hmm. and (laughs) is already worked up. So Mm -hmm. not level ground for Cassius in this fight. One one could argue Severo's form of drinking is just torture or knife crafting or knife crafting. Yes. Yeah. Fair. Fair point. But the match ends when Lyria jumps to intercept. She's knocked out by Cassius reeling backwards and just putting her on the floor with an elbow on accident, uh, having smashed her nose in. Cassius quickly rushes her off to the med bay to take care of her. Darrow then breaches the conversation with Severo, asking if that solved it for him. And then we get the addressing of Ulysses and Darrow being a goblin because that's what Barker, Barkas do. And it seems in a big way like Darrow and the Reaper with Severo and the Goblin and Severo needing to break that chain to this other beast or the impression that this other beast holds. Darrow does his best to turn this around, explaining that he is a better man and imparts that wisdom that he has really gained since Dark Age for the first time in his friend, showing, I think, that he is actually committed to the change. Mm. This confrontation with the Goblin made me realize that we we never really explicitly pointed out that alter ego like we had with the reaper and with the sovereign and we should have we totally should have but we we weren't really exposed to several very much in dark age Mm -hmm. but i i still feel like i've neglected several's humanity 
in my assessment of him in the previous books, given this sort of breakdown. Yeah, I, I do think that we had kind of I wouldn't say that it's necessarily that we fully neglected it in comparison. I don't think the text I, I feel gives like it personally right I have, Oh sure. Or it, sure. I, yeah. I I did a very explicit job of separating Darrow from the Reaper and I just let the goblin fly. So I personally not that we've talked about it at all I see what you within mean. the podcast, yeah. but I personally in my assessment of Severo neglected to sort of see that similar necessary alter ego yeah totally get that probably because it's been around for so long darrow's evolved into it as he came into this sort of warlord position whereas severo's been like that since we met him at the institute because he had to be in order to get in yeah yeah he's kind of he's always had to be fierce for 10 dozen reasons he even uses the comparison predominantly of like it's the way i was raised it is the barca it's the men of the barca family and this is sort of the curse in a big way, we're not meant to be fathers. We're meant to be weapons, tools to be wielded and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough. And I think that it's nice that we do finally get to reckon with that alter ego a little bit. And I think by comparison, the goblin is maybe the biggest alter ego of them all. Like it is truly Severo adopting totally. almost a full on feral different personality because that's, he believes that that's what's needed. That's what I'm saying. We've been exposed to it since yeah. book one, since the Institute. No we, fair. We've been exposed to the Goblin without totally, or without me totally realizing that it was kind of a separate personality and a sort of segmented faction of himself. And we've we've been exposed to it for so long that I... I never really considered that it was something different than just who he is and reckoned with it i totally get that several also leans into his self-loathing because he's so broken and needs to be told about cassius and his place and how they're all fighting for his kids right cassius's place on board the ship is fighting for your kids it's our kids it's all these things couldn't imagine losing you know pax in the same way that you lost them but we're fighting so that this can continue so that everything can continue and Darrow addresses Severo as a brother and that they're all fighting for their kids and, again, reaffirming that he is truly his best friend. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a really fucked up way, this entire chapter, this, this conversation specifically, but this entire chapter, including the interactions with Cassius, evokes brotherly feelings. Growing up with two brothers, mm-hmm. I grew up in a big family, you know this. You did too. Mm-hmm. Like, we love each other. We love each other very dearly, but we still like to fight. <laughs> we like to bicker and argue yeah. and and have disagreements for the sake of having disagreements. Sometimes, I I don't personally because know. something else is wrong. You know? Yeah. yeah, exactly. I don't personally know Pierce Brown's interactions in any sort of brotherly way. Like I don't know if he has a brother. I know he has a sister, vaguely, mm-hmm. but like. He captured it really well. He captured sibling tiffs really well, like amped up, obviously, to the point of fist fights and torture. But the the spirit feels very inspired and real. Yeah, it does feel very brotherly. I would I would totally agree with you. 
There's also a note in the middle of this conversation that's a little bit of comic levity that happens about Valdir actually wanting to sleep with Darrow. And we've already like we've heard kind of the mumblings of like the Valdir thing as we've gone on. Mm -hmm. But this is like affirmation that that was actually the case. Yeah. And just the the deadpan look from Severo when Darrow balks at it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a little little perfect bit of bit of levity to lighten up an otherwise very serious sort of feeling chapter Mm -hmm. so with a slap on the back after an encouraging speech about his love and their journey together now that they will face we end the chapter all good all good all good (laughs) all good pretty much the way it goes that is the way it goes it's totally the way it goes (laughs) Uh. all right with that we get into chapter 49 lysander ve victus and that is Woe to the Conquered, of which I believe is also the last line of the chapter as well, or near the end. Yeah, it's so, down there. We return to Lysander, and Atlas plans to explain to Thaw the new plan of which Lysander will helm the society to come. This is a beautifully written chapter that shows us this deep system that Atlas has built with Thaw at its head, as well as the world of Io during its breaking. Lysander supposes out loud about why he didn't nuke the Garter itself. Atlas responds with, Absent a dependable source of food, there is no civilization. The goal is not to destroy the rim, but for you to be able to control it. He follows that up with, The greater the trauma, the longer the peace. Bear it, and this year will be the last year you see war in your lifetime. There is something really strangely fatherly about Atlas's interactions with Lysander throughout this section, and and this part of this chapter specifically. It's, I feel like, an important absent thus far imparting of wisdom in Lysander's life. So it's kind of strange. We get that feeling from someone shown to be pretty cold to his own child, but we've already discussed some of the reasoning behind that in, in Atlas's feelings towards fatherhood and what it means to be a father versus what it means to sire someone basically. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, yeah. A growing sense of fondness and fatherly responsibility seems to be overcoming Atlas in this section. Yeah, I I think that it even goes back further than this, by and large. And I think the first sort of tip of the hat to me that I get of Atlas acting or behaving more more fatherly, I would say, than he is towards Ajax, is the... there, There are a couple of different moments, but in particular... When Atlas apologizes for his parents' death, like saying that he he knew and his, I think he says his father was his best friend or something along those lines. I think that that's the moment for me that, you know, he says that he loves his parents or something, something akin to that. I don't remember exactly what it is. It's in that realm. But that is the sort of thing that latches me into him feeling some sort of actual responsibility for him, considering he knows that he didn't really have a father ever at any point in any period. And from Lysander's perspective, the only real father figure that he's had in his awakened mind life at this point is maybe Cassius. Basically, yeah. Yeah, arguably. Maybe Roan. Maybe parts, yeah, maybe. A little bit. Here a little there. bit. Or but that's more like respect. Gl- and he's also the wrong to, to a very small degree, too. Not really. Yeah, Gil Rossius is more like a cool uncle. <laughs> but I can yeah. see that. I don't know. Yeah. 
Atlas feels to fit the bill the best of anybody. Yeah. The bills always do at the end. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Oh, boy. <laughs> We're oh. watching a lot of bill paying right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. This whole thing yeah. is a very large tab. This <laughs> This is a very large tab being racked up on behalf of the rim. This is and the kind of tab where you walk away from it leave and flee the country. Yeah, no joke. Flee the solar system entirely. Uh, but man, the deference that Atlas has paid and the kinship that he shares with the kin shield here among the obsidians makes you realize that he is really kind of doing this out of cruel necessity in many ways. And we also see the honor that the Obsidians carry, especially in reverence to the fallen golds that they slayed for this cause. He then talks, Lysander then talks to Faragus, Faragaris, and who really gets to kind of the heart of the Ascomani problem as they are reptiles. He also, in part, addresses the Volk, and neither of them seem to be as sophisticated as this group of Obsidians is in reality. Everything about this army and how it was assembled and held together and maintained is frankly impressive it's such a perilous balancing act and the depth of understanding that atlas held for all of these different factions and how they can be pressed and their strengths and their weaknesses and motivations and and all of them individually are really impressive to know them that well inside and out, but then to know them to the degree where you can bring them together and keep them together. All the Oscamani tribes are described as like hating each other, but they, they're more Feral. greedy than they're than they are hateful. So like mm-hmm. he he knows how to get them to have a common goal and it it is so much more impressive, I think, than it even seems to present itself as. I definitely agree with that. I think the other thing that fascinates me about Atlas in context here is the way that he was able to pull all of these disparate groups together and then manage them, like you're saying. But then on top of that, the sort of respect and kinship that he breeds within his soldiers. I mean, like, this is... They truly believe the cause, and he also truly believes the cause, which I think is why it's so fascinating, because he was willing to just live on the edge of space forever as he was outlawed, as he was sent out by Octavia. Like, he was going to do that and never see the sun again. Yeah. And he was okay with that, because he knew that it was going to extend the reach of the society in the long run. And so all these people also bought into that ideal, and that is... So they're all living on, on borrowed time to begin with by their own, mm-hmm. like, understandings. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't, you know, they didn't think much of it at the time. I mean, they were just going to be in the far ink forever. So. Mm-hmm. And imagine not seeing the sun. It'd be like nighttime a lot. You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just really appreciated that. And for man, it's not an episode if I don't fuck up one pronunciation, but Fergalicious here is Fergalicious? You know, just, I think, also for nope, Fergalicious. All right, Fergalicious. Yeah. Yeah. Fergaris. 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 
Fergalicious that's is delicious. definitely that's that's delicious. I don't know Fergalicious Fergalicious well enough to like continue reciting. Oh, Fergalicious definitious make the boys go loco. I don't know something like that. It's something um, like that. I'm not confident enough yeah. to say that's right or wrong. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, I know that it's right, but I just mean that's yeah. <laughs> anyway, the core point being here is that I like that he's that not only. The Kin Shield is also aware of the balancing act, right? So it's not just Atlas that is maintaining this mission either. Like there's that extra layer on it too. These other folks are bought into understanding and maintaining that delicate balance. They're not just, you know, like we were making the joke earlier that these are just a bunch of Gorgons that are like pumping their fists in the air. But in reality, they're much more instrumental than they are just frat boys. Like we were even making them out to be. Right. Sorry, I was dancing like... A Vespine gas extractor from StarCraft. <laughs> it's a very specific niche bit for anyone who's listening to the show. If you don't know what StarCraft is, you should go figure the life out. But it's it's a part of the basis of the name of our company. Come on. Anyway. But then we get to Fa. This intimidating figure of valor on his black throne of burned bolt gold crests with this crown rising higher and higher with each victory the the crests being layered in and burned by all of the colors around him onto the throne it's this incredible powerful image as he leaps down and takes the heart out of abraxes this dragon before throwing it into the bonfire and it, i think it's called like a mass of meat the size of a man or something like that it's, which is just yeah fucking huge yeah. mm-hmm. this feels like a diablo cutscene. Like, the way that I'm imagining this is very much in that art style <laughs> of, like, the Diablo 3 hand-drawn, photorealistic, like, art, like, cutscene that they spent forever and a ton of money on, which worked yeah. out wonderfully, and then that whole game fell flat right on release, unfortunately. I still loved it. Yeah, it I, had a long life afterwards. It though. had a very long life afterwards. I, I came to it in the midst of the controversy and still loved it. So it was but, a great game. Yeah. They, this feels like it could fit very well within that sort of art style cutscene. Yeah, it definitely has that sort of that feeling to it. And I, I definitely see that sort of image of him just raising it up. And there's like he begs the profile of this barbarian warlord, right? Like he is this sort of guy. And I think that's why it does feel kind of evocative of Diablo in the way that you're citing it here. And and the like jumping down from a like honorific symbolic throne. Round. Like I, I can I, I could see focusing on if we were to adapt this, focusing on this burnt out sigil that then gets stomped by the boot of of Fa, and the pa- camera pans out, and you see him like walking towards this dr- like dragon carcass, and like it, it, I have an image in my head of how this scene yeah, would play you, out. You like see a sigil peeled from someone's hand. And then thrown at the throne, thrown at the bottom of the throne, and that's the first time that you see Faw inside of this episode, inside of the season, really, mm-hmm. to be reminded yeah. of him physically. Yeah, totally. I see that. Love that too. It's a great, great idea. Whoever's adapting the show, we're we're available whenever you'd like. Yeah, I'll um, I'll yeah. do it for like quarters. 
a lot of quarters. But we'll do it for guild minimum quarter, quarters. But, you know. but yeah, I'll I'll scab. I'll do it for. <laughs> <laughs> PJ, I'll scab Heller. <laughs> uh, so yeah, terrifying, intimidating image. The Volk go to town on the dragon. It's a whole feast. It's a big deal. This carved creature being turned into a meal. Um, but we then cut to meeting Fa actually in person, having traded his armor for a purple kimono and a comically small glass of cognac in his massive hands. That immediately reminds me of seeing you hold anything ever. Um, <laughs> And then he talks, he's got this, the vocal fry deepener thing in, and then he pulls out that voice modulator and speaks eloquently in a fashion that for us, the reader, is so frightening. Listening to the audiobook Shocking, for the first time through this. Yeah, yeah. But I first time through this was all audiobook, as it tends to be, because I listened to it like in bed immediately after we record. <laughs> which I'll be doing again today. Hey, look at that. But the change in the voice had me utterly flabbergasted. I had no idea that something like this was coming. Like the theatrics of all of it are hilarious, obviously. Like there's a, there's a lot of theatrics throughout this, but how simple some of the tricks are is really funny. But given the background and the prestige and knowing how booming Ragnar's voice was, I had no problem believing that Vagnar, Fa's voice, was even deeper and even more commanding and booming. It was pretty comical the way that uh, TGR presented Fa's <laughs> um, voice in the audiobook. It was like this, but I believed it. I totally believed that that mm -hmm. was like really the way that his voice was being presented. And I, I absolutely broke down and had to stop listening right away and like back up and make sure I heard it properly <laughs> and re-listen to it. When it switches to him yeah. and the other voice and it's yeah. just this sort of soft and yeah, man, I, again, nothing hits quite like the coffee shop. But I was, <laughs> I was sitting in the coffee shop listening to this and I went, what? And then I backed up and I picked up the Kindle version of which I was, I kind of had side by side. I was like listening and I was playing some games and I was doing some work and whatever else was happening at the time. I didn't really need to work that day because I was traveling and had the day off, but I did some work on the side and uh, popped open the Kindle and immediately took down notes uh, as it pertained to a lot of other things in this chapter. But I just remember also seeing that physically in the text, when it goes from big, black, darkened, bold text that we were, we've known this man for for the whole time that he's been in the story, that we know Ragnar for as sort of an important marking piece, to then see him go to regular text even is just, <laughs> it was shocking. Yeah. It was truly shocking. Totally. Yeah. Hilarious, though. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely hysterical. And nothing has made me. Well, I, I think I think we'll get to it after when we get to Ephraim. And I want to talk about that once we get there. But and kind of that that whole conversation. But it is so shocking. Also, he's drinking cognac. So cheers. Cheers. But we then move to Vela. And there's clearly a secret here and a card that will be explained soon. But it's a lot. We're going to we'll, we'll get to it in a bit. So we don't want to talk too much about that. But he saved a member of the family. Shortly thereafter, we see Gaia and that 
were told that this old matron killed all but one of her nieces and nephews and Lysander Lysander shows his way to niche conversation Lysander shows his didn't realize we had William Shatner on the podcast Lysander I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was Shatner it was an impression of who's the first Pierce or not Pierce Brown not Pierce Brosnan either also, the same guy that I'm thinking of, though, James Bond, which is Sean Connery. That's who I meant to say. That's who I know. That's why I was like, William Shatner? That's <laughs> yeah. who I was thinking. Yep. Yep. It, was, it was closer to a... I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to try to reapproximate it. Just an idiot. So yeah, It's fine. Yeah. It's the egg cast, man. <laughs> welcome to the egg cast. <laughs> when I make the description, I mean, it's just going to be welcome to the egg cast, buddy. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and then next week's chapters. <laughs> that's all that's going to be in the notes. <laughs> Everyone will be really confused. <laughs> They'll be really happy about it, I'm sure. Yeah. But so Lysander shows his weight in this conversation as he absolutely stops Fawn Alice from killing Thalia for the potential of a future marriage between the houses. I just, Gaia killing all the children is a, a good, ultimately, a. A kindness in many ways to probably mm-hmm. what would have happened otherwise, but unthinkable. Yeah, I mean, she raw raw levels of practical. She is a hardened person. Yeah, uh, respect her there. Um, quick thinking on Lysander's part because he wasn't able to get Serafina in bed, so he needed to like <laughs> figure something out and best go with the youngest <laughs> daughter, the youngest sister <laughs> of Serafina to. <laughs> I'm expecting Didn't want the, like, the sister with the broken Atlas back to take or off another layer of prosthetics and just be Chris Hansen again <laughs> popping out. Uh, <laughs> Chris Hansen has had his telomerase extended to the point of where he survived up until this point, but Selenius hasn't. <laughs> Sit down, have a chat with me. Chris. Hen- Chris Hansen is timeless. <laughs> In in all seriousness, though, I think the political reasoning is sound to pursue a marriage with this child. It would be a very compelling argument to get the rim to rally behind Lysander. So I don't know if they I think his reasoning is genuinely. What can I say to spare the life of this little girl? Like, I I the way that it's presented in the text, that seems to be the case that he has to think fast mm-hmm. and like come up with a reason. So I, I think his primary reasoning is to save her just from being killed for the sake of killing political adversaries. But the fake or the cover up reason for it is sound, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> I want to, Renumerate for the folks that are listening to this. PJ did do little air quotes around fake. So, you know, potentially there there's a degree of truth and honesty. It does scream Iona Bologna at me. It does scream Nero Augustus. Like not that not necessarily that Thalia would be that person, but at the same time, I can't help but get the vibe that like how Lysander did you not learn? And also how Atlas, I think, has to understand that situation and he's not letting it go for that reason but he's letting it go because he sees sort of the honesty and preserving the family tree to some degree and so i think it is like 
I think he's just letting Lysander have the win, you know, more than anything else. Sorry, I wasn't listening. I was giggling at Iona Bologna's name again. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> no, you're right. You're totally right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. No, I just, I, it feels like there's just that barest bit of attention paid to like maintaining his family tree to some degree. And like, while he doesn't, you know, as he said, he would burn the whole thing down for civilization. I think that if there were a chance to preserve it, he would choose to. And I think he kind of is in some ways here. But mm, I agree. Yeah. It does scream that whole situation back at me, though, for sure. All right. So with that, we get into chapter 50. Lysander, heavy is the head. Now, really, we come to understand Fa more fully as Atlas unfurls the plan. His sojourn as ruler of the Rim is only to last three weeks instead of three years, and the man is absolutely awash with relief as he comes to understand that he will finally be done with this torment and he can sit on a beach with his toes in the sand, drinking Mai Tais, just hanging out, maybe having a salad, maybe having a corn dog. Who knows? You know, it could be both. That man can both. put down corn dogs. I'll tell you what. That man. With the iron jaw and the fake eye, he could put down a corn dog. <laughs> he could put it down right into that sand. Yep. <laughs> um, but really, we we find out more than anything else that Fa is an artisan. He's a man of taste, refinement even. He'd rather be at plays than play war leader. Like, he he's getting a lot out of this effectively, including a retirement with his daughter. And that's why he's chosen the path, the occupation of warlord. Hmm. I I laughed out loud at this revelation, this understanding. I was not expecting such an eccentric character to come out of this man. I've I'll continue to use the word theatrics because we've used it quite a bit before. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to note that these atrocities committed by Fa were actually committed by Fa. While theatrical in the ways of disguising his true intentions and his true like desires and who he wants to present himself as, they're not totally a farce. He is capable of these things. He does these things and it is horrifying. He's really fucking good at doing atrocities. He, he's yeah. a com competent atrocity committer. Committer. <laughs> yeah somehow he feels like a an oversaturated caricature of apollonius if can you explain what you mean like yeah the, by the, like oversaturated like like just in instead of apollonius being this well blended individual with uh his his um love of music and of poetry and history while also being a very capable swordsman and fighter and leader and like those things blend well and and lend it, like he he uses all of his strengths and all of his passions to push himself forward in all of his other aspects like i i would very much believe that apollonius would lend some of his leadership skills 
to the dedication that it takes to learn the violin and master the violin and like all of all of his interests and his hobbies and and his masteries lend themselves towards whatever he's doing and in in the case right now it's leading legions whereas fa seems to kind of pervert that seeming duality of like delicate things and war and pull them apart a little bit more and and it's this striking warlord that that really commands fear and is a presence to behold completely segregated from this art loving artist not not art loving artist but just just a connoisseur of art and i wouldn't call him a pacifist but somebody who just wants to retire and and be at peace and loves animals like his daughter does and go put his toes in the sand you know so it's it's this at face value very similar sort of seemingly congruous interests that Apollonius has and Apollonius makes them work together and harmonize. Whereas he just pulls them apart and is both. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that he, I think that the, the line that like his occupation is war, right? Like he, he is good at it, but he like, doesn't want to be, he would rather mm-hmm. not be. He just kind of is functionally. And right. so, I mean, I think that that's by and large to me, that's like the defining difference between the two is this that is wholly Apple's character is all of those things. And it's a confluence of his ego and everything else versus this is like, yeah, my day job is being a warlord. But what I really love is I love acting. Yeah. And he's like, sometimes my job got my job got really cool when I started to get to be acting warlord. Right. <laughs> like, you know, so maybe it's but, unfair to yeah. to call it a caricature I, I of. Yeah, caricature is, is maybe the phrase that I take, take yeah. issue with. But there are similarities. There are parallels for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you see where I'm getting at, though? Like the. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I definitely did. The explanation yeah. is well, well warranted and weighted. And I think that caricature is just the wrong word for what you're That's, going for. Yeah, but yeah, probably true. Yeah. His caricature, I think, paints paints like Faw's position negatively against Apollonius. And I don't think that that's what you were trying to say at all. No. Like, right? No, like just, not, yeah. just trying to draw a comparison, but understand yeah. that there yeah. are stark differences. Right, right. Yeah, there are definitely, you know, on a Venn diagram, they overlap in a lot of areas. And the one that they don't overlap in is Fa on his side is, this is just a fucking job. <laughs> 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 yeah that's true yeah so but man we also get a callback to Ephraim and I think this plays very heavily in my mind right we get this new perspective of Fa, and I think it lends a completely different lens on Ephraim as a man and his sacrifice and even what those words in Dark Age meant in the moment of his death when he called him worthy heart in hand like this it, yeah, oh, Fa has fucking respect for him, which is not something that you imagine at the end of Dark Age and in Ephraim's dying moments, even. Yeah, it's it's not really a new meaning, but the word worthy 
for sure sits a bit heavier <laughs> after yeah. this explanation. Yeah, Alice also says he would have been one of your favorite knives, or he says to Alice he would have been one of your favorite knives, and that's he would have never, but you can you can imagine. You can imagine. Yeah. Fuck. So the the question that I want to pose here to some degree is do you think that this reveal of Fa cheapens anything that happened in Ephraim's story at all? I don't. I don't get that feeling at all. Yeah, I don't think so either. Because it didn't influence Ephraim. And like it it, it doesn't cut down Ephraim's journey in any sort of way. Mm-hmm. And he even like yes, the depth of the sort of mole that he sussed out in Xenophon is even deeper than he understood, but he was still able to realize that Xenophon was the the poison True in Sebi's ear. Yep. Did did it change it for you? Did it change it for anybody? Not at all. Not at all. It was a big point of contention. There are a couple of things that people occasionally draw issues with, and this is one of them that I completely disagree with. I disagree with that altogether. I was I was just curious as to as to if you shared that opinion or not in this moment. Oh, I think if nothing else, this lends credence with a hat tip of sorts to Ephraim as a man deserving of more. Yeah. I could I could maybe I could maybe make an argument like that if we made a big point of following Ephraim's journey without being in his head and without him being mm-hmm. a, a perspective, but getting that sort of point of view and, and understanding his motivations and his actions, it, it doesn't cheapen it at all for me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Curious. That makes sense. And I'm, I'm entirely on your side. I, I think that there is, there isn't anything that that cheapens that in my head. So mm-hmm. here, at the very least, on the page, like it, um, it's not like Fa's not doing this. Yeah, it's not like, like Fa <laughs> isn't this evil tyrannical warlord that was still doing these things he's just, just because he's also is in bed with Atlas. Yeah, and he's also just kind of a normal guy when if he didn't have to be a warlord, like. Again, you know, it's it's kind of a meme within the, even the last 10 minutes of this episode, but it's his job. <laughs> and so he does his job ruthlessly well. So, yeah, he does. Yeah. But this gets us to the question of Volga in staining her hands in this war as well, which is what Atlas suggests. What do you think that this means for Volga and Vagnar going forward? I don't know how to answer this because I feel like... I still feel like Volga will come out as an agent for the Republic or at the very least an agent against Fa. And maybe it's just me holding on to hope, but we haven't been exposed to anything that Volga has been doing. We don't know anything that she's thinking. So I don't want to smudge her, her good name in my mind to think that she's been converted onto Fa's side, corrupted in some way. So, Assuming that she's still wanting to take down Fa from the inside out, which seemed to be her intentions when she joined, it doesn't really change anything going forward. With the the one caveat being that now that the war that that Vagnar's 
aspect of the war is coming to a close, he can and wants to provide her with exactly the thing that she wanted from the beginning, which is basically own her own little zoo and live a peaceful, like animal focused sanctuary life on a, on earth or another planet. Like, and if she can get that, I I wouldn't falter for accepting it with the one caveat of it being that she'd be going with that motherfucker to do it. So I, I don't know how to answer your question without having some more insight into what Volga is actually thinking. If that makes sense. Yes, I absolutely agree with you as to the question of like conversion and what that picture really looks like, because we don't know where she's at really um, in, in this moment. I also find it very fun that Lysander is like on from Fa's boring moral, like boring family life or whatever the hell he says in the moment. It's just <laughs> Lysander being so fucking petty. <laughs> I mean, given mm-hmm. his entire concept of worlds are being blown up minute by minute, but right. You know? Yeah. So there's a note both here and I think later in maybe chapter 51 or something like that, or maybe it's even earlier that they've been infected, but there's this disease that Atlas is spreading really nasty to include this as a way to uh, eliminate others inside of the belt to basically send these, these people out to get rid of them, you know, in these, in these ships. It's, it's a lot to do all over the belt. Yeah. Atlas isn't a good person. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah there's no part no part of that uh but beyond that the plan itself that he unfurls here is relatively simple what lysander will do taking out fa as a part of this is an iron rain to an iron rain to reclaim io and a fake routing of the obsidians killing a fake fa having his fake head being able to be presented to the 200 although he's off on some mercurian moon getting lit with his daughter (laughs) (laughs) drinking my ties on the beach and the rest of the plan that's going to happen between point a and point b is that fa is going to bomb the other moons and raise them he gives lysander the choice to save a moon and of course the immediate instinct is to save ganymede considering it is the most populous of the moons themselves and having already been through their own form of torture to some degree at the hands of the docks of Ganymede falling and killing many, many people. Yeah. Lysander at that moment makes a an understanding or a, an observation that Atlas is very, very quick to accept that what would you call it? A pardon, I guess. The pardon of Ganymede. A pardon Ganymede. for a moon. Yeah. And posits that maybe Atlas didn't intend on calling Ganymede to begin with. But regardless All of these sort of steps towards the end of this campaign create a lot of points of failure and points of egress for the truth to come out. Don't get me wrong. You you and I know I love a good heist movie. I love I love sort of intricate plans that that get pulled off. But I'm excited to see how they pull all these off, especially the fake killing of Fa. But I'm equally excited to see the blowback of that and 
potentially even the fact that Ganymede survives could be the the fatal flaw to this entire plan with that many people that could potentially have information that blows up their whole shit. Yeah, it could absolutely come back to bite them in the front. Bite them in the dick. Bite him in the dick. Yeah. I mean, there there is a lot. And to just add complications to the matter, it's not as though we, the reader, don't know that Darrow is in the very same system right now. Going to the very same as, city. As though that isn't going to fuck stuff up. Yeah. So it's a coming, you know? All right. So then Atlas explains his plan for Orpheus and where he will be in all of this. The vault there guarded by Shadow Knights, a new term here that is shown to us and protected for ancient reasons from 750 years ago akari stole a weapon that inadvertently seemed to have forged peace between the two groups for fear of mutually assured destruction Idemy, as it's called can target any of the colors and eliminate them entirely that is where vela vela will go and how the door will open is with the scar scarred of the raw family not even atalantia knows about this part of the plan making it perfect for lysander to use my favorite thing about the description of the weapon was the immediate question from Lysander when, like, the horrors of it, the the depth of it is revealed to him. He just says, even gold? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, dude. Like a child. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even gold. That's the whole fucking yeah, any point. any color. I think the inclusion of a weapon like this makes sense. From a historical and world building perspective. But given that, like even given that, this is uh, a heavy, 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 horrifying thing to unleash on the world. I mean, it, it is the equivalent of nuclear holocaust on a solar system wide level. Mm-hmm. And. Of course, something like that exists, maintaining a tenuous decorum. Yeah. Yeah. But I love the the name for it and the etymology that we get into. Um, Is that is that I figured it got into it, so I didn't need to. But is that true? Is that truly the entire root of the word edit? The whole thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. I figured, but I didn't know for sure. Super cool. Terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, in, Ooh, in a okay. lot of ways. What color like, would you eliminate if you had this power? Well, it, so it appears as though it's on like a world level, right? So it's like yeah. world yeah. by world you'd have to go in order to in order to do this thing. So what I would do is I would edit out a different color on each world to create strategic advantages for other worlds so that there would be more competing economic systems. So you want to create the fallout monopoly vault system on a <laughs> on a solar system level. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want <laughs> I want like anti monopolies. Like, ah yes, on this world there are no whites. <laughs> ah yes, on this world no pinks. <laughs> is there is No there reds, a, what are you gonna do? What's your labor problem? How are you gonna solve that? Anti monopoly. I mean antitrust, right? Is sort of the trust versus antitrust. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Oh man. And of course, it's Orpheus, just to layer in a little bit more of a deeper metaphor onto the the whole thing as well. Yeah. The the name, of course, being evocative of 
the man who went to hell and back to rescue his love in theory. Mm-hmm. But nice little tie in there. So yeah, I, I do have this sort of, I have this question about why Atlas himself can't be the one to open the vault because he is a scarred raw. But you, you can't, you can't help but think that maybe there's something else to it, you know? Hmm. Does it have to be a raw given scar? Maybe. I don't know. I, I'd be curious if there's something to that effect. But. Yeah, to me, it's really unclear. No idea. Not sure. It's kind of left as a massive question mark in my head. Mm. But Lysander has one final question for Raw or for Atlas in this in this chapter and in this moment. He says to quote, you've killed your nieces, your nephews, your sister-in-law, and I don't imagine Vila will survive Orpheus. So why is Gaia alive? Fa and Atlas exchange a look of amusement. Fa laughs. Really, Dominus Loon? What kind of monster would kill his own mother? Can't a man create a forest of writhing, (laughs) impaled living people, fashion a crescent several hundred meters wide of bodies of, of your kin, basically, cull almost all of your living relatives without being questioned on why he didn't kill his own mom? God, what the fuck, Lysander? Why is this hard for you to understand? Oh, man. I, I, I re-listened, re-read this line so many goddamn times when I hit it because I was like, oh, so that's where we draw the line. Like, that's where that line lives. Hey, there's I'm a, not going to kill my mom. I'm glad yeah. there's a line. Some some fucking version of an Oedipal complex going on, and I'm <laughs> not sure where it lies. We'll call it an Atlas complex. Yeah. Not wanting to kill your own mother is now. <laughs> Atlas complex. Uh, psychological disorder? Must be. I'm, yeah. No idea. No idea. So with that, we get into chapter 51, Midnight Lands. This is kind of, it's a, it's a great chapter. I love it. There's not a metric ton to talk about here. So this is actually going to be a pretty quick kind of in and out. I mean, it's, it is similar lengths to the other chapters, but a lot of it's description in, in great ways. But I've got a couple of quotes that I definitely want to tackle first. So to start off here, right at the beginning of the chapter, Darrow says, Virginia always thought it a strange perversity that so many of Jupiter's moons were named after women or goddesses Zeus raped and then graced with the ultimate torture to be held under his gaze for eternity. From what I've seen on my journey to the inner Ilium, Tha has been no kinder to the moons than Zeus was to his conquests. And I think that this really encapsulates what we see in as we open this chapter. This is sort of the desecration of holy individual and also not something i ever thought about or realized yeah same. you know one of those things that completely without context passed right over my head the description's pretty horrible but this absolutely helps me understand the moon system's state of affairs after these mm-hmm. attacks i think what this opening does most is highlight the difference in perspective between darrow and lysander whereas Lysander primarily sees the outcomes and 
the larger political moves, which are obfuscating the the horrors that are actively happening under his nose. And Darrow gets to see the means to that end mm-hmm. in these chapters, back and forth. Yeah, it definitely is, you know, he's he's living in the reality of the consequences of actions, but not actually reckoning ever with those consequences on an individual level, for the most part. Right. That's, that is a great difference to compare between the two. To add to that, there's another quote here as we kind of go through the wreckage that I really like that's, I think, on the same page. More and more, Fa feels like my shadow. That darker part of myself that knows the shortest route often lies through the ruthless application of brutality. And obviously, he's talking about the Reaper there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, we talked about it a little bit before, those comparisons and how it makes itself more known after the reveal a little bit or after the direct comparison of uh, Fa being the sort of created messiah to the obsidians like Dara was to the reds mm-hmm. or to the entirety of the color system below gold so but it's still i think important to point out how ironic it is i guess to hear the story of how came or hear the story of how fa came to be right before darrow points out his understandings more and more of their similarities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he sees and he kind of understands it on a tactical level, but there is kind of a, a sort of a great dramatic irony that we experience this through this perspective and, and kind of know the truth of the matter. And it's that he's nothing really like him mm-hmm. in the end. Most of this chapter is spent on their cautious approach and viewing of the carnage that has been visited upon Io and the beauty of its landscape, unterraformed and sort of the damage that's been wrought. And I have to say that Pierce does a really great job here sort of bringing us to that space and making us occupy both this unterraformed world that is pocked with volcanoes, as well as the sort of cruelty and deadness of the space that we occupy. Pierce Brown has a really special ability to hold these terraformed planets in his head or moons and think of the way things could be after terraforming and then transform it again with how the landscape could be shaped and changed and ultimately destroyed by humanity. Like it's, it's a couple Really, really impressive steps, and they're impressive in their own right, but to do it all together is really cool. It's important to note, I can't remember at this point if I said terraformed or unterraformed. This one is not terraformed, but yes, to your point of everything else, I mean, like, it is is incredible how he holds them and makes them all feel so distinct, Mm -hmm. right? Like, not a one of these moons feels like the next, and not a one of these planets feels like the next, even. And seemingly, and I'm sure there are lapses in this uh, assessment, but seemingly there there were topographical maps of each of these moons consulted at the very least in the creation of, or not necessarily just moons, but the planets, like Mars for sure, there was topographical mm-hmm. maps consulted in the terraforming process in, in the story writing. So it's 
not just oh, wouldn't it be cool if that moon had people on it? It seems to be a lot deeper. And have it have volcanoes? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It seems intentional yeah, and it definitely... seems well put together, but mm-hmm. the ability to juggle the layers is what's really important or really impressive to me. Right. Right. It is remarkable in a lot of ways. But this chapter ends, I think, on a really dour note as Daryl reflects on the cost of war and weeping for his enemies as he witnesses all of these sort of tragedies and brutalities of these towns and people floating left lifeless where all that had to be done to kill them was crack their their delicate domes and everything inside <laughs> perished. Yeah, there's we need to make some dour patch kids. <laughs> it's like dour patch kid number one tastes like black licorice dour patch kid number two tastes like wet toast wet dour patch kid toast? number three wet toast yeah it's similar oh no the of flavors <laughs> somebody get on how to capture the taste of wet toast hey thomas get on how to capture wet toast that's flavor <laughs> we'll hire you to make our dour patch kids i will not eat them yeah all right with that we'll get in chapter 52 our final chapter of the week darrow sungrave we pick up the chapter as they're making their approach on sungrave what we know to be the capital of io the story of the ilium moon is the same so far as they progress death darkness and silence darrow and severo on approach babble about how much bologna has gone off plan by bringing diomedes with them as well darrow approaches cassius and we understand why he's brought the raw here to potentially show them something that they can't see in other people that there is this sort of spark because they're so raw to this war at this point that there might be something else that they can pull out of diomedes by showing him the reality or even agrees with cassius this is tact here and explains that diomedes has agreed to be darrow's parole and proves cassius to be this moral knight i have to constantly and actively repeat in my head that i trust him i trust him i believe cassius is doing the right thing i believe he's got a good head on his shoulders right now but god damn it does not like does this this feels like it could be the beginning of a really deep betrayal. Ooh. Okay. All right. Ultimately, while they're kind of arguing over the details, Severo gets Diomedes p- parole and they've already agreed to go. He does it privately on a comm channel <laughs> and manages to get it. It's like either he goes or he dies. So, you know, it's pretty easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they continue forward without that firm promise basically to Severo, which is I think a, a fun way of, of moving it forward. But we get to Sungrave and what a cool city as it's explained here. I think in giving us like a much more firm picture, we, I think we get a really good picture of it in, in iron gold from Lysander's perspective, but we kind of start in like the spaceport and then we really just go to the raw household. We don't really get to see the sort of grandiose nature of the city on the whole because we mostly see it from this sort of confined perspective that we also kind of witnessed in Morningstar. But to get to see the whole city in the sort of grandiose way that the 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 laser carved dragons at the mountains that are artisan and the reds didn't have to work on. So no one was sacrificed in the making of this beautiful artifice. 
the way that the city plunges down and is in fact more beautiful in underground than it is even on the top surface. I mean, it's all just incredible, a, a monument to tenacity and ingenuity. There's a description that I loved, and I think it sums all of that up really, really well and succinctly. But, quote, Sungrave was once a city that demanded awe, end quote. That's just such a great descriptor. And it doesn't say anything tangible about the city itself, but I... I feel the vastness of it and the the breathtaking nature of it just from that description. Yeah, and that also includes like the spine as this thing that was already described to us from Atlas's perspective as having poetry engraved on each step and like just all of these small details I think culminate especially over the course of this week into this sort of glorious picture of this now barren and destitute city that was mm-hmm. just fall was just here you know right Whew. and speaking of just being here we do get to see the very little leftover of braxy's left and that is just the head that remains mm-hmm. on the ground of the consumed beast we get the explanation of why the heart is consumed and the sort of religious reason behind it i guess Mm -hmm. and all that does for me is add more weight to ephraim's death and how capital w worthy he was yeah and i i think that that's even something that we get with the drake hunt right that we see with with sefi and eating of that heart as well like it all kind of it, it full circles in a big way so it all it all makes sense and that culture hasn't changed and it shows that despite all the manipulation it's all very similar and so they they track that um, but in particular, there's the other side of this, too, where this is the decapitation of the raw household in a big way. This is oh, yeah. this is it. This is all this yeah. is. The, here's the symbol of your head on a platter that I'm leaving in your capital city. Certainly symbolic. Yeah. Boof. I love the note that we get here as as we come to kind of not quite the end of the chapter yet, but as Cassius and Severo have made up that he's been making his own hooch on the side in the machine shop and that it's actually pretty good. He's he's pleasantly surprised that Severo did it. And it's kind of this like makeup note, this apology note between Cassius and Severo. Wordless, but still meaningful and sentimental. I think he calls it moon hooch, right? Moon, moon some- hooch. Yes. Yeah, moon, hooch. moon hooch. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I I don't know. It still feels like it could be a potential trap or very slightly poisonous, like just to give yeah. incontinence, maybe. Seems like something Severo would do. <laughs> I mean, that does kind of feel like something you would do. But. Yeah. It, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not entirely convinced that it is a completely innocent olive branch, but it Moon's is nice swill, to see way. at least the presentation of kind of an olive branch. Yeah, my my extra like little layer of thought is that I bet that he was Severo was making this beforehand, right? In order to have hit this point, like chances are good that Severo had been working on this for a bit. Yeah. And this was not something that was just born out of needing to apologize in the moment, but he gave it to him because he was thinking and knew that he was more than even what he was saying at the time. Or it's all the heads or tails of the distillation process. 
And it'll make him I mean, go it blind. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it could be the heads and tails. That would not be that would not be great. I love the bit that <laughs> that comes of this too. He says that he's been making it in the machine shop. Lyria can vouch. It's decent stuff. She has a head injury, Cassius. She only had a dram. It was an olive branch, I think. And that is a good joke for two reasons. And that always means that it's a good joke. (laughs) She has a head injury, meaning she can't taste. And then Cassius coming back with it was only a dram, meaning like, that's not what I meant, but a fair point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's a good joke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was it was very good. So I, I really love the way that this chapter ends shortly thereafter. It does kind of go down on a, a little bit more of a dour note. But we end the chapter with Diomedes being let out of his chains to search for his family, giving his parole to Darrow in a head nod. And Cassius's trap snaps shut. I, you know, I, I think about this chapter and I'm like, <laughs> I was like, where's this paranoia coming from? And you're like, oh, yeah, Crossland ended here. That's why. <laughs> what do you want me to believe? <laughs> Your paranoia builds no matter what I do. <laughs> you do oh, this to God. me. This is your fault. <laughs> yeah. You, and you fair. do it on purpose. I know it. <laughs> Sometimes it's just that we couldn't read another chapter because it would have been too much. No, it's this not. is already textually a long section, but we we got we got through it actually. It's a good time. It's a good cliffhanger. Yeah. Yeah. First, yeah I mean the episode first two, sentence three of the hours. next chapter is Cassius putting his razor through Darrow's neck and Diomedes and Cassius riding off on each other into the sunset. They'll trade the rest halfway of the book. Through. The rest betrayed halfway through. They'll trade. They used to betrayed halfway through. Like Cassius stabs Diomedes halfway, halfway back to wherever he goes. They are each each other's noble steeds. <laughs> yeah, the rest of the book, if uh, if that were to happen, is just it's Wednesday, my dude, over and over and over <laughs> again <laughs> on every page. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah, that's it. I think this book would get critical acclaim if that were the case. I mean, it already has critical acclaim, so I told you I'm, what happens but next. That's why. Right. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right, PJ. So with that, next week, we are going to be reading chapters 53 through 61. 53 through 61. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, to Tim and Andrew for putting up with our shit. Or like constant shit, we give Pretty a lot constant. of it um, for being the backbone of this entire venture and keeping the show going. I do not exaggerate when I say we couldn't do it without you, and thank you very, very much. I don't know if you listen to any of this, but thanks. Check out the links in the show notes. Now I'm talking to the listeners. I'm not talking to Andrew or Tim anymore. They don't need to look in the show notes. But you listeners, you should listen to the show notes. You should look at the show notes. Find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our websites, our social media accounts, all in one nice, easy, convenient location. We also want to take a second today to thank our new barback patron, Andromedus. Thanks so much for joining us and joining us over in the Discord, getting access to all of the other goodies that we offer. We're super glad to have you. Other than that, make sure that you leave a five-star review. If you don't leave a five-star review, we will put you through more egg talk, but 
directly to your face and also put you in a black egg, but you'll still be able to hear us. And you don't want that. It's a bad thing. It'll be bad. We'll do it without notes. You don't want Crossland without notes. He's You don't want me without notes. Unintelligible. Rants. <laughs> Nothing but rants. If you are one of those social media focused people, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at PJ, what's Twitter? <laughs> you can find us on X, Instagram, and Reddit. <laughs> can you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> can we? Can you can you find anything on on X slash Twitter anymore? Do, do we still have a Twitter slash X account? We do technically. Okay, I have you can find us there. I have deleted my own, but it exists. All still. right, you can follow the quiet, dead <laughs> corpse corpse of our X account. <laughs> it wasn't. You can't find us on Blue Sky. All right, I'll threads. add that to the pattern. Uh, <laughs> Words Whiskey Pod on Blue Sky, Instagram, and Reddit, and X if you want to follow something dead. But you can is, – is, is that our account name on Blue Sky? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I kept it the same because I was like, why not? I mean, that's branding. Um, yeah, right. You can email us complaints about egg talk at wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com. And if you want more of this shit, you can uh, follow us on Patreon and give us dollars. If you if you think we are worth more than zero dollars per month, you can give us dollars and join us on patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. We would really appreciate it. I love doing this and it's it's so much fun and having a Patreon genuinely is the only thing that makes it actually possible for us. Feasible. Yeah. Do it. Um, or buy the more a episodes lot, we do, like, the more expensive. If it gets. you buy so many t-shirts on T public, like, uh, like a, a stupid number of t-shirts, like if a you build your entire wardrobe out of our t-shirts, it still might give us a dollar or two. So <laughs> follow the link on T public. I was going to say, $1,000 gets us less than a month of Patreon. <laughs> so. Somehow. Somehow. I don't get mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Cool. All right. With that, we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.